Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we're back. We are. We've yes. uh, we've put the saga of Bar the Snafflesauce to bed, taken a much-needed break for the end of the semester, and we're ready to start a brand new saga. Yes. Uh, John, this is our 28th saga, and it's the saga of Thord Menace. <sighs> I can't believe we've been at this for seven years. We're only 28 sagas in. We are, I know. We are I know. super slow at this. We're so bad. But the numbers don't lie. But still, Thord Menace. Thord this is going to be an interesting one. Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, this is one of those sagas that tends to fly under the radar. Um, I don't think a lot of people have read it. Maybe a lot of people haven't even heard of it. But we've been using mm-hmm. some of the time off during the holidays uh, for brushing up on our Thord Menace knowledge. Is that what we've been doing with our time? Well, I mean, we have to have been doing something all this time. We haven't recorded one of these okay. in quite a while. Well, it's only been a few weeks, but it's it's, it's been, been I mean, it's quite been a few weeks, John. Quite really a few has. Uh, we have we were both busy with our semesters ending and then semesters beginning, yeah. teaching online and all that, mm-hmm. and that's before all the recent political upheaval here in the U.S. Mm, political upheaval is a that's uh, the nicest way to describe it, I suppose. Yeah, I could use less polite words. Uh, Look, I know this podcast is meant to be a platform for loving literature and history and occasional bad dad jokes. That's what we are. That's our wheelhouse. It's what we'll continue to be in the hope that it brings a little bit of knowledge and maybe a little bit of pleasure in a world that could use a lot more of both. Mm -hmm. But I think it would be irresponsible for us to completely ignore the events that happened in America recently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We had a few conversations about how to deal with everything that's happened. And uh, yeah, we've got some stuff planned. So a crowd of white supremacists and alt-right extremists attacked the Capitol building with the encouragement of the then president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And that is not a sentence I thought I'd ever have to say. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, there's a lot packed into that. And I think it will it'll continue to get unpacked for weeks, months, maybe years. Yeah. Um, yep. But, you know, our, our particular subject isn't exactly the central issue there. But I do think it's worth pointing out that there is a link that often and unfortunately develops between the world of Viking studies and ignorant white supremacists and nationalists. And as I'm sure most everyone has seen, some of the people involved in the attack were men wearing or tattooed with imagery derived from Norse mythology and runic symbols. Yeah, it's a, Yeah. So one element of the thinking of the seditionists who did this is that they are justified somehow in an attempt to recover a past that they imagine validates their racist and ethnocentric worldview. And sadly, that is not a new phenomenon at all. No. But it's, I think, easily demonstrated just how wrong those ideas are. Yeah, honestly, you don't have to read all that deeply into the sagas or into the history of the Vikings to see how wrong this idea mm-hmm. is. True. Uh, but there is a growing body of research where good people are working to establish both the historical realities and tracing the misuse of the past throughout, well, really, well, since the inception of medieval studies as a field and probably right. even before and, that. And, and you and I have both done some reading, but we, we aren't experts on this aspect of the field. No, no. Um, I do know that the Victorians loved their Germanic culture. Um, that's one they thing certainly that did. helped uh, to us get the ball rolling. And and were partly motivated by the desire to establish a uh, a purity in the past. Yeah. Right? So undoubtedly, from the beginning of the field, that's been there. That's been one part of what shapes the field. Exactly. But uh, there are colleagues of ours who are experts, um, who are engaged in really great work on this history of racism and on the misappropriation of medieval ideas and images. It's a growing field. Right. And there's also really important work being done on the history of racist ideologies within medieval studies mm-hmm. as well. 
A lot of that, as we said, that founding work on European medieval studies that was powered by nationalist nostalgia, right? uh, uh, a dream of a supposedly purer past. Right. So rather than trying to speak authoritatively about this, uh, we think it's important to focus attention on the voices of scholars who have been doing this work for years and doing it quite well. Uh, so we're going to try to bring some of those scholars onto the podcast if they're, they're willing to come. And hopefully we'll be able to get a saga brief together on this subject for you guys. And Listen, I know you're already laughing to yourselves and tittering because uh, we've we've made promises in the past. And once or twice, once or twice. We've joked about various briefs that have been in the works for a long time. Uh, Gretchen and Beowulf, for example. For example. Uh, Snorri Sturluson. Mm-hmm. A few others, maybe. Sons of Ragnar. Sons of Ragnar, you know. Yep. Uh, but this one, this one's going right to the front of the line. So get out of yep. the way, uh, Bjorn Ironsides. Mm-hmm. This w- Yeah, I feel like it's important that we get this one yeah. done. We probably should have covered this before now. Yeah, I think so. And in the meantime, uh, while we're working on that, we will continue our study of the sagas. Of course we will. In the belief that learning about and enjoying the literature of the past is a worthy end in itself. And we hope it provides some comfort and maybe even occasional humor. A laugh. (laughs) Very, very occasional. Semi-annual humor. At best. Uh, this literature, and I think we've been making this point for a long time, one thing that makes this literature so satisfying to read is that it so keenly observes the nature of people. It does, yeah. There are bad actors, terrible and twisted people in the sagas, just as there are in modern life. But this literature and the culture that created it are not a home for or a justification for white supremacy or racist ideology, full stop. Definitely. All right. Uh, There's more we could say about this, uh, and we will uh, in the future. Uh, Yeah, no, there is. Uh, You and I, we've had multiple conversations about this in the past week. But yeah, yeah. We'll save that for another time. It's time to turn back to our immediate job of discussing the saga of Thord Menace. Right. So, Thord Menace is the story of a man who's obviously named Thord, who yes, thank you. gets into a blood feud in Norway and then another one in Iceland. Uh, so far, so good, or at least so typical, right? Uh, but as we'll see, mm-hmm. there are nuances to Thord's story that give it an interest of its own. Right, which... We have to say, doesn't mean that those nuances have been widely appreciated. No, definitely not. There haven't been a whole lot of people working on this one. Um, if you look it up in the databases or online, you'll find that there are a few, like Elizabeth Ward, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most people, even most saga specialists, haven't spent a ton of time on Thord Saga. Yeah, now, that lack of regard for Thord Saga extends even to editorial choices about its publication. Yes. Uh, now, we've talked about the Islandsk Fornreet series before on here, mm-hmm. the critical editions of the sagas, which have been slowly published over the last century, and which are, and remain in many cases, the default scholarly resource for print editions of many of the sagas. Yeah. Especially for the sagas like Thord Menace that aren't as widely read or studied. There just aren't yep. a ton of other quality editions out there to choose from. Uh-huh. Uh, but even there... The, re- the editors of that series register a kind of arm's-length chilliness toward this saga. Yeah. Uh, Thord's saga was included in volume 14 of the series, which is the final volume dealing with the sagas of Icelanders, and it's a collection of what the editors called younger sagas, uh, what one of them in another publication had called the spurious sagas, mm-hmm. essentially the lies. Uh, as, as Ward points out in her dissertation, This volume was essentially a collection of less respected sagas. Uh, And it's the only volume of the entire series that's not built around a specific region of Iceland. Mm -hmm. In other words, this volume was for the leftovers, for the other sagas, the ones that the editors saw as being outside the saga history of Iceland. 
It's pretty cold treatment there. Uh, mm-hmm. Volume 14 really is an interesting look into the minds of those scholars and what they thought of as spurious or of lesser mm-hmm. quality. Uh, besides Thord, they include Viglund Saga, the Saga of Ref the Sly, uh, Kjalnasinga Saga, the Saga of Finboi the Mighty, and the Saga of Gunnar the Fool. <laughs> I have to admit, that is a somewhat oh, motley crew. But it's a great crew. We, we've talked about yeah. some of those already, and they do tend to indulge in the fantastic a bit. They just break that mold sure. a bit. Yeah, yeah. But the result of thinking of them as a lesser set of texts carries over into their critical reception in other ways. Mm-hmm. What scholarship there is emphasizes them as disappointments for their failure to achieve or sustain a typical saga narrative. Almost as if it was you reviewing them. Uh, in Oh, now <laughs> you have built this up to something it's not. But even, even Elizabeth Ward, who wrote an entire dissertation about Thord's saga and presumably feels some affinity for it, writes that, and I'm quoting here, Looking at the complete saga, we are faced with a saga that is narratively unsatisfying and lacks the escalating feud structure and legal proceedings of many other sagas of Icelanders. Mm. Now, uh, whew, others have weighed in on this saga. Uh, not a lot of people, of course. Uh, this is really one of those overlooked members of the saga family. Uh, but it has been, well, let's, let's get noticed. It was noticed. <laughs> Hit me. What do you got? Well, uh, Regis Boyer uh, wrote the entry for this saga in the Encyclopedia of Medieval Scandinavia. And he begins with, Thor's saga is one of the minor Islendingos Ogre. It completely lacks any historical basis. <laughs> Uh, don't hold back there, Boyer. Tell us what you really think. Yeah, well, it, it, first of all, most of the sagas lack any historical basis. So what? what what's he doing I there? Mean, but, uh, you know, but completely lacks yeah. is well, hey. taking it outside of that conversation about the history of the sagas completely. Right. Uh, anyway, his point is that the saga is so clearly a late invention drawing from earlier sources that it makes an interesting case study in how a good saga author tells his story, draws his characters, and combines details. Oh, I mean, okay, that's, hell, compared to everyone else, that's downright effusive. <laughs> on the other hand, our old pal Jonas Christensen, uh, he offers a single paragraph on Thord, but in it he mainly focuses in on the manuscript tradition, which we should talk about at some point, though maybe we'll yeah. put that off for next time. Uh, yeah, let's save it, that for next time. It's a bit time, of a conversation. We've, we've already been talking for a while. Yeah. Um, but anyway, his his assessment of the saga itself is that it's almost pure invention, not like the Riddarasogar or the Fornodasogar, but an imitation of the sagas of Icelanders. Fan fiction. He's calling it fan fiction. He kind of is, yes. Um, yeah, that, that, that happens for a lot of the sagas in that in that mm-hmm. volume 14 of the Um yep. He doesn't even offer the qualification of Boyers that it's at least good fan fiction. I, hey, at least he talks about yeah. it. Uh, Stefan Einarsson's book, A History of Icelandic Literature, makes exactly one reference to Thord's saga in a list of post-classical sagas. He calls it adventurous. Adventurous. That's it. Just adventurous. That's it. I mean... Uh, incidentally, Einarsson also mentions Mark Twain once in his book as well. <laughs> so we might infer that those two are apparently considered roughly of equal significance to the history of Icelandic literature. I understand. Mark Twain and Thord's saga. <laughs> I'm not saying we should make that inference. I'm just saying the data backs it okay. up. Okay. Uh, be careful following the numbers then. Now, elsewhere, that same disregard continues to crop up. Um, There's the excellent critical guide to Old Norse Icelandic literature edited by Carol Clover and John Lindau. Uh, It doesn't contain a single index reference to Thord Menace. You know, I'm starting to get the impression that people don't think this saga is very important. Well, isn't that what we're here for, John? I suppose it is. I mean, that's what we do. Uh, All right. Let's blow some dust off this saga and see where there's any gold underneath. See, I like your enthusiasm. 
even if it, it flies in the face of all available critical opinion. But okay. Ah, now that's what we're here uh-huh. for. <laughs> Are we ready? Almost. Yes. Uh, but we have to decide on the Hrofenkels. Maybe not decide, but measure oh, them. What's the right, Hrofenkel right. measurement for Thord's Menace? Yep, I've got it right here. Thord Menace clocks in at a hearty 1.75 Hrofenkels. It's almost two <laughs> Hrofenkels, but not quite. It's respectable, not overwhelming, but respectable. Yeah, just whelming. It's, merely whelming. It's, it's quite whelming. All right, uh, let's get this thing going, right? Light her up. Part one, a Norwegian prelude. Ah, the old Norwegian prelude. Hey, when you find a formula that works, you stick with it. This is a good one, though. Right. So uh, the saga tells us that there was a man called Thord, the son of Hordakari. And like many of our Norwegian prelude figures, Thord was a well-regarded individual of high status. Right. All part of the formula. Yep. Thord was a hersir, uh, but many considered him to be better than any earl in many respects. Yeah, you got to heap on that praise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should also, we should make a point of noting that this is not the Thord that the saga is named after. Of course uh, not. Just in case I anybody gets confused. Knows that. Uh, I don't think everybody knows that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb that, here and say that this Thord uh, married well and had remarkable children. He did, in fact. He did, uh-huh. yes. His wife isn't named, of course. Uh, this saga is not terribly interested in uh, women right. and their experiences. As we'll see. Yeah, as we'll see. Uh, but uh, I think you'll, you'll, you won't be shocked that she's from a good family. And uh, they have three sons and a daughter. The eldest son is named Steingrim. And then there's Klup and Eolf, the youngest son. And they have a daughter who is called Sigrid. Now, let me guess. Is Sigrid by any chance a remarkably attractive young woman? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, the formula dictates it, Mm -hmm. doesn't it? Uh, uh, But I think we should also note that she's also said to be showy and proud Mm -hmm. and one of the most skilled women in the district. Of course she is. I think we've read this one before. I think we've read this one quite a few times. Yeah, but this one feels very similar to Gisli's saga. Mm, uh, I think about the beginning there. We've got a patriarch who is a hairser in Norway. He's got some remarkable sons, three remarkable sons, and a daughter who is, as you said, showy and proud. It's true. Uh, if, we, if we follow this formula, we should see the family get into trouble soon on account of Sigurd's attractiveness, maybe multiple times. And that will probably lead to one of the brothers or the entire family getting outlawed. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's how Gisli saga works. But uh, mm-hmm. this is the saga of Thord Menace. Yeah. And I know you've read it already, so you know exactly yep. how it plays out. So uh, Right. And I'm just making the point that there's a very formulaic nature to this opening. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, not so much to undercut the saga, but to draw attention to how we read stories, or better yet, how we tell stories. As we yeah. said in the introduction, this is an author who's very interested in how sagas work. You know, and you think about how this opening works, right? What it establishes in terms of expectations. Right. Yeah. No, we've got a noble family, well-respected, well-established in Norway. Uh, mm-hmm. That signals to most readers, especially Icelandic ones, uh, that there's going to be a reversal of fortune on the horizon. So right from the beginning, the audience is aware of an underlying tension, largely because of their familiarity with this formula. Exactly. And I, I realize that we're running the danger here of spending like 10 minutes analyzing the first two lines of the saga. But uh, there's also that introduction of Sigrid as proud and showy. Mm-hmm. Right? That increases the tension further because, again, because of generic expectation, we can almost guarantee she's going to be the object of desire for some inappropriate suitor who will complicate things for this family. Yeah. And we should also point out that because the family is marked as successful and well-respected, 
we can assume that they have a bit of luck on their side. I think that's Absolutely. always important to recognize. If, yeah. if all goes according to formula, that luck should transfer from one generation to the next, ensuring that even in the face of great adversity, which they're bound to face if this story is going to be worth telling, they will eventually achieve a similar or even greater success by the end of the tale. Possibly, right? Assuming this isn't a tragedy, right? Remember, mm, right. Gisla Saga turns toward tragedy, and so we see the lucklessness carried yeah. on to a fifth generation. Uh, but there is an underlying notion in stories like this that the cream rises to the top, or mm-hmm. at least shows its quality at some point in the saga. Sure. So we'll we'll see if that holds true here. Yeah, of course, uh, one of the great things about literature, and I think about art in general, is how good storytellers play with audience expectations through manipulation of familiar formulas, motifs. Bad storytellers simply follow the tried-and-true formulas without any innovation at all. And when that happens, the characters can be very thin, and the plot line's predictable, and the overall effect of the story far less engaging or impactful. Now who's criticizing sagas for generic quality or lack thereof? <laughs> now who's doing that? Uh, I think it's also it is worth saying here that a good formula, I think it can have a long shelf life in storytelling and entertainment. Right? That's um, true. It isn't just limited to sort of one genre. Authors and audiences appreciate the comfort and entertainment value of a formulaic story. I, I completely agree. Uh, but... Good formulas are perpetuated, I think, by small, nuanced adjustments, little additions and innovations that help keep them fresh. So this, when that happens, when there are those small, nuanced adjustments, it can make it harder to see where the old formula ends and where the new one begins. Something I think we see happening in the scholarly debate over the artistic merits of what have been dubbed the classical and post-classical sagas. That's valid. Certainly that's valid. But... We shouldn't just completely abandon the question of relative quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all post-classical sagas ring the changes on the theme with equal skill. True. Right? To put it in the terms you've been using, there's a difference in those artistic merits from one saga to another. In these first paragraphs, our author isn't establishing himself as the most innovative at changing up his source texts. But that's the mo- that's enough about storytelling and formulas for now. We'll have time for all that later on. We've, we've got a lot to cover in this first section. We, uh, we got derailed like two lines in. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we do. We do. Uh, just speaking of derailments, we, we, we were talking about authorial signals to the audience. Uh, there is one more thing I want to point out about this opening before we move forward. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to keep dragging this train. But uh, OK, uh, what's up? Good. Well, Thord is the son of a man named Hordakari. Ah, uh, yes. OK, so speaking of that, things contemporary audiences mm-hmm. would be aware of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as modern readers, uh, I'm sure none of your ears uh, perked up when I said Hordakari. Um, especially if you're living in America. Uh, It's easy to miss some of those little details uh, that add extra texture to the story for the intended audience. Are you saying that Americans aren't good at paying attention to the finer details of things? How dare you, sir? Yes, I am saying that, in fact. That's one of the things that makes Americans (laughs) Americans. Uh, We're big picture people. Yeah, but that's why we're here. Even though we're Americans and we do whatever. Don't worry about that. So so Hordakari is a famous hair seer of Norway, often regarded as the most powerful man in Hordaland. Thus the nickname. Exactly. And this is Ketel Hordakari, uh, a man who pops up pretty often in genealogies as the progenitor of the most important men in all of Hordaland. Uh, He shows up in the Heimskringla, where Thord, father of Klip, is mentioned as his third son. Uh, Hordakari also shows up in some of the stories we've already covered on Saga Thing. For example, he's in the first chapter of the tale of Thorstein Bullsleg in the genealogy of Ulfjot the Lawspeaker. That's Ulfjot the first lawspeaker of Iceland. 
the one and only, yes. And Ulfjot is the son of Thora, the daughter of Ketil Hordakari. Uh, we also see a quick reference to Hordakari in chapter 13 of Erbikja Saga, uh, when young Snorri travels abroad for the first time to make a name for himself. And he stays in Rogaland with Erling of Soli, Hordakari's great-grandson. And as the saga says, Erling was well disposed towards Snorri because of the friendship between Hordakari and Thorolf Mosterbeard. Of course, I mean, that makes sense. Mostar Island, which is part of Thorolf's nickname, is in Hordaland. It, it is. And Erling, as you may know, is a significant player in the Christianization of Hordaland, at least according to the saga of Olaf Tryggvason in the Heimskringla. The descendants of Hordakari only agree to convert the region to Christianity after King Olaf arranges a marriage between his sister, Astrith, and Erling. And Olaf agrees, as does Astrith eventually, and Erling becomes a major player in Norwegian politics going forward, a major player in that story. Now, okay, you're connecting a lot of dots here. I am, aren't I? Is there anything you can conclude from all those stories? Or, as you're fond of saying, are you deliberately shilly-shallying to delay the start of the story even further? Mm, That's an interesting question. I'm going to start like this. First of all, shilly-shallying is part of the saga thing formula, especially at the start of a new saga. I wish I could deny that, but I can't. And second, connecting all of those dots helps to establish the importance of the family we're dealing with here. Uh, This isn't just some unknown or minor noble family from Norway that we see in so many other sagas. Um, This is a family at the center of Norwegian politics going back long before the rise of King Harald, through the reign of King Olaf Tryggvason, and beyond. This is a famous family that Icelanders would have heard of. So... Invoking the name of Horthakari right at the beginning helps to draw the audience in. Absolutely. Now, it might have lost all of you. I'm sure most of you are <laughs> tuning out at this point. But if... Wait, 10 minutes on the history of a man none of us have ever heard of? is uh, <laughs> You don't think that's riveting uh, audio? Maybe not for modern audiences, but uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to draw the connections here. Um, if the contemporary audiences had heard of Horthakari, then they very likely would have known the famous story of his grandson, Klup, the Norwegian hair seer who... That's the story we're about to tell. My point exactly. My point exactly, John. Well done falling into my little snare. The saga sets the stage to flesh out a story that is familiar to the audience, something that they'd surely be interested in hearing, I think. There's a sketch of this story in chapter 14 of the saga of Harold Greycloak, but Mm -hmm. the opening of the saga of Thord Menace promises to tell us a more personalized version from the perspective of Clip and his brothers. Right. And that's something that, you know, we said earlier we want to talk about this next time, this double tradition of this particular saga. Uh, so we're going to want to pay attention to both versions of the story as we go forward then. Okay, then. I'm I'm, I'm ready to do it now. Are you ready? I, I was ready 10 minutes ago when I introduced this section. Fair enough. That, you know, but uh, this section turned into something different, which is okay. So <laughs> what do you say we, we start the story over and have a new section? Did, start it over? Does that mean we actually started it? <laughs> Part two, the Norwegian prelude. Take two. All right, if it's all right with you, I'm going to actually get the ball rolling here. That's fine. Go go ahead. You have to promise me there won't be any interruptions or digressions. I, I'll try my best, but please, please continue. The saga tells of a man called Thord, the son of Horthakari. Anything to say? Nope, no, I'm good. He had three sons, Steingrim, Klup, and Eilf. His daughter Sigrith was extremely attractive, but also showy and proud. Mm. When the brothers were almost fully grown, their father grew ill and died. 
Now, there is a very interesting aside here about his funeral being done in, as the saga describes, a magnificently pagan style. Mm -hmm. Yep. But that's basically all it says. So it's a missed opportunity, if you ask Uh, me. What happened to no interruptions? Oh, I was adding, not interrupting. That's very different. I see. Uh, Since you interrupted, I'm going to just add that uh, I I had a student a few years ago in my sagas course who had photographs of his grandfather having been given a Viking funeral in Boston Harbor. What? In the late 1970s. Uh, wow. They they put him out and set fire to the boat. He was a retired police officer. And so the police came by, watched it happen, and then said, no, don't do it again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's an amazing story. And he brought in photographs for the class. It was, it was, it was quite astounding. I don't think uh, you could get away with that today. I don't think so. Uh, now, okay, uh, after the funeral feast, uh, Thord's wife uh, gave birth to a boy who was both beautiful and strong. I should clarify, not like... Not like during dessert. Like it was some time after the feast. <laughs> uh, and they, they named this this young boy Thord after his father. Uh, the saga reports that when he grew up, Thord was well-built and strong, handsome and imposing, strong-minded, tough with those who crossed his path, but generally popular. He was generous, affable, and a loyal friend. He was good company and an excellent all-around sportsman. He was a better swimmer than anyone else and a talented poet. That's a pretty impressive and long resume there. Uh, John, <laughs> remind me again who gets to choose Thingman first when we get to judgments? Are we at the – tell me we're at the uh, the coin toss stage. I need a good oh, swimmer. How quickly you forget, Andy. Now, to be fair, we recorded those judgments over a month ago. Uh, a lot has happened since then. I I know I went first and I chose Snouty the Wonder Dog, which is a great choice. Um Wonderful choice. Everyone's writing about it. <laughs> I oh, just yeah. I just don't know. Uh, I don't know where we're at in the rotation. Was that okay. because I was, you know, what, what's going on? Well, uh, here's where we are. Uh, we're at the point where I let you go back and listen to the judgments if you can't remember. Mm. Uh, or better yet, wait until the judgments of this saga and find out. Mm-mm. No. Nope, nope, nope. That means you're going first, doesn't it? Just wait and see, Andy. It'll Come all on. be clear in a few episodes. Come on. Damn. All right. <laughs> Uh, now, according to the saga, Norway was then being ruled by the sons of Gunild and Eric Bloodaxe. Uh-huh. Uh, we've met, this is a couple we've obviously met many times. Yeah. Now, we're told that when Thord grew up, he wanted to join the court of King Gamla Gunhildeson, the best loved of all the kings of Norway, except for King Halkin, King Athelstan's foster son. Now, see, this part is a little confusing to me. Uh, John, remind me when Gunild's sons became the ruling lords of Norway, because I think that's yeah. kind of important. Yeah, the timeline here is a little fuzzy. Uh, we've been over it before, especially back in Ale Saga. Yeah. Uh, but it bears reviewing here. Uh, King Eric and Gunild were exiled from Norway by King Hauken, Eric's brother, around the year 934, give or take a few years, depending on your sources. Now, that's when they flee to the west and eventually set up shop in Northumbria for the remainder of Eric's life. Yeah, and, and this is the problem for our narrative, because Eric's sons return to Scandinavia after their father's death in 954 and attempt to overthrow their uncle, King Hauken. Now, Gunild, their mother, helps to establish a base of operations for them in the court of King Harold Bluetooth of Denmark. And I think we have to assume that it's at this time that Thord would have had to enter Gamle's service. It would have to be. Um, right. Once again, though... Things don't quite match up. They never do. Uh, the saga tells us that Thord serves King Gamla for three years, but Snorri's Heimskringla has Gamla dying in 955 at the battle on Rosterkalf Plain against Halkin the Good. 
Gamla makes a bold last stand there, but is ultimately cut down by Hawkins' forces. And Gamla's brother, then brothers, then flee back to Denmark. Let's do that last line. Yeah. Uh, Gamla's brothers then flee back to Denmark. Yeah, and that date of 955 for the Battle of Rostokov is pretty well established as 955, um, but I'm not sure with what precision. It's just that's what it's always dated at. I know it's an important... Yeah, yeah, it's an important battle. Um, It's marked by the death of both Gamle and of Hauken's right-hand man, Eil Ulzerk. But dates in this period are really hard to pin down. So I suppose Mm -hmm. it's possible that the battle occurs a little later, but it really can't be much later. Right. I mean, the point is that there's very little opportunity between the time Gamla returns to Scandinavia with his brothers yeah. and the time he dies in battle against Hauken. Right, to, there's not there's not time for a three-year visit from Thord, yeah. uh, during which he becomes enamored with uh, with Gamla and then serves him faithfully, right? as the saga suggests, right, over a three-year period. Mm-hmm. And, and claiming that Gamla was alive and beloved by all of Norway when Gunnild's sons ruled, well, I think that's even more problematic because <laughs> Gunnild's sons don't take over until after King Hauken dies, without an heir, by the way, in 961. Gamla had been dead for six years by that point. So what the heck is going on here? Right, We already said that these dates are a little fuzzy, right? So if yeah. you just shift them around a few years, they could be happening more or less around the same time. But honestly, it's impossible to say. Uh, the best explanation we can offer is that the author has sources that contradict our own or that he has jumbled up his history, whether accidentally or intentionally. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that we're meant to understand that Gamla is bouncing back and forth between his followers in Norway and those in Denmark. Uh, Gamla did fight against Hauken with a combined force of Danes and Norwegians. And while the Danes abandoned him in that final battle, the Norwegians stood their ground and most of them fell by his side. Hmm. So they were loyal to him, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, But even then, the timeline's still too tight for the saga's version to really work, and that's kind of what I'm harping on here. It's an odd choice by the author, especially since he doesn't really, this is the thing, he doesn't need Gamla to make this part of the narrative work at all. He could easily have just sent Thord to work with King Harold Greycloak, especially since the story of Klup, which we're about to hear, takes place during that reign. Yeah, but that's the sagas for you. I mean, you know, fudging these dates, shoving them a few years one way or the other because they serve your narrative, that's that's pretty typical. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, now, as we said, Thord spends three years in King Glamla's court. And like most saga protagonists, he impresses his lord in all that he does, especially in battle. But when Thord turns 15, he decides it's time to head home and check on his own lands. Yeah, and so Thord was 12 when he went to serve King Gamli. Yeah, uh, kids grew up fast in the Viking Age, Andy. They sure do. Uh, now, Gamla's willing to let Thord go, but not without a gift and some parting words. Uh, Gamla predicts that Thord will turn out to be a great man. And then he unbuckles a short sword that he wore every day, and he gives it to Thord as a reward for his years of good service. Yes, and this, this sword will be known as Gamle's Gift, and mm-hmm. it comes with these words of wisdom from the king, or whatever Gamle is at the time. He says, mm-hmm. I beg you not to give the sword to anyone else or to part with it at all, unless you are in danger of losing your head. It is not unlikely that you will have cause to remember this. Right. Now, we have to assume that those are important instructions. Yes. Uh, this isn't the first time a character's been given a weapon with the careful instructions on how to handle it. That's right. Uh, but will Thord listen? And <laughs> what exactly happens if he gives the sword away, John? Uh-huh. Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. Uh, ooh, the suspense, I guess. Uh-huh. Uh, the Thord explains that he won't be gone long and that he enjoys serving by Gamla's side. But Gamla, 
accurately predicts that he won't be around long enough for another meeting. Mm-hmm. This proves to be true. The saga late, later reports that Gamla was killed shortly after their uh, their parting in that battle with King Halkin the Good. Yeah. See, I mean, the author even references the sagas of the Norwegian kings in this yep. moment, saying yep. that the story of Gamla's death is told there. So this author must know that his timeline is all messed up. I, maybe. Uh, but, you know, as we said, his source might have things organized a little differently. Uh, perhaps he's misremembering the timeline in the text, right? Mm. There's nothing that says he has the text or write to hand as he's writing. Yeah, that's true. Uh, who knows how and when he was able to access the written history that he's representing. That's fair. And as a guy who jumbles things up rather easily myself, I can see how that might happen. <laughs> uh, we have the uh, convenience of all this uh, information at our fingertips now, but yeah, medieval authors had to work with what was immediately available to them, which wouldn't have been much. And, and then they got to remember all the rest from things that they've read or heard. So yeah, I suppose we can forgive him then. Oh, that's very generous. Yeah. Uh, now, Thord makes his way back home where he's welcomed by all his relatives. By this time, Thord's elder brother, Klup, has taken their father's place as Herser and as the leading man of the district. Yeah. But Klup has a serious problem, and he can't quite build up the nerve to resolve it. Yeah, we learn that King Sigurd Sleva, the younger brother of King Gamle and King Harald Greycloak, has a bad reputation for taking advantage of women. Now, at some point, he visited Klup's estate and took Klup's wife, Olaf, to bed with him. The saga doesn't say anything about this event or whether Olaf was complicit or not, but it is strongly implied that this act brought great shame to Clip. Right. Now, this is one of those moments where we can go across to the other tradition of this story. The Heimskringla is much more direct, and we have to assume, since he's already referenced it, that the author is following that version of the story. Mm-hmm. There we're told that King Sigurd visited the estate of Herser Klup one day when Klup was not home. Olaf, being a gracious hostess, gave Sigurd an appropriate welcome, honoring him with a large banquet and plenty of alcohol. Now, late that night, Sigurd went to Olaf's bed and forced himself upon her. He then left the next day as if nothing had happened. When Klup learns of the assault, he plots a swift vengeance with his kinsmen, and it's worth noting that in that version of the story, Thord isn't mentioned at all. Yeah, but this is Thord's saga, and in this version, it is suggested that Klup is uncertain about seeking vengeance against King Sigurd. Thor, being a man who is strong-minded and tough on those who cross him, urges Klup to strike back at Sigurd to repay him for the grave offense. Uh, now, John, why don't you read Thor's <clears throat> words to Klip real quick? Um, I think it's worth addressing what he says there. Sure. Uh, Thor says, What is this, Klip? Don't you want to wash your hands of the shame King Sigurd has heaped on you? If you allow him to insult you by using your wife as his mistress without seeking revenge, you will become a public spectacle and be scorned by everyone, and you'll never achieve the, the acclaim that your ancestors had. Even though the odds are against us, it is better to lose our lives with honor, if that is our fate, than to suffer such an insult without doing anything. I hope you're prepared to uh, keep going with that voice, because you're going to be thawed throughout this whole saga. Am I? Yes, so I hope you're, I hope you're ready. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> All right, now... On the one hand, we have Thor urging his brother to avenge the assault on Olaf, though the terms are somewhat different here than in the Heimskringla. But I find it quite interesting that here the question isn't so much about the effect on Olaf or the trauma she may have suffered at all. Sigurd's abuse of Olaf is viewed as an affront to Klip himself, to the family. Mm -hmm. It's the shame heaped on Klip, not Olaf. The insult is to Klip and more broadly to the honor of the men in the family. Again, not to Olaf. 
Right, that's exactly it. We said earlier that this saga is simply not as interested as some in the stories of women or in the plights of women. Mm-hmm. But in this culture, even in the Christian culture that produced this saga, this is a question of honor. Right? And that's that's going to be tied up in this. As much as early Scandinavian culture may have afforded women greater respect and legal protection than women in other parts of medieval Europe, for the most part, they were still viewed as extensions of their husband's authority. And they are occasionally regarded as commodities. Uh, Abuse or theft to a man's property or to a woman under his protection was an attack on the man himself. And in this regard, sexual assault can be used as a tool or a weapon to establish superiority or to strike at one's enemies. Mm -hmm. First, there's the, uh, the domination over the woman being assaulted, but then more significantly, an implied domination of the assaulter over the male relations of that woman. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree to an extent, or I I guess I should say I agree completely, but I want to maybe qualify the idea a little bit. Because Mm. it seems naive to me to assume that within the world of the real people who experienced things like this in the Viking Age or in the age when the saga was written, that that they didn't acknowledge the woman's suffering at all. I mean, to me, that would be hard to dismiss in the real world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I don't mean to suggest that quite a few texts deal with the trauma of that experience. Mm -hmm. Remember, we saw that in Barth's saga. Right, right. In fact, that suffering, the the pain and shame a woman might feel after such a horrific act would, I think, no doubt drive the men in her life, her Mm -hmm. husband, her father, her brothers, her sons, and close friends to feel a vengeful wrath as they watched their loved one process what has happened. So for the men, there's a sense of shame, whether misplaced or not, that they were unable to protect her. And so they begin to feel a sense of humiliation and a deeply personal violation, too, as their own weakness is exposed, their inability to safeguard that which is most precious to them. So I have no doubt that this was part of the response. What is noteworthy here and in most of saga literature is that the experience of the woman and her feelings about such a deeply personal transgression are deemed secondary or here not worth mentioning in the saga narrative at all. Yes, yes to both points. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge the distinction here, right? The the literary tradition may disregard the experience of women, but the story we can we can we can infer that the men aren't merely treating the women as commodities. Um, their response, even when taken as a personal affront, is grounded in emotion, right? in a yeah. complex psychological processing of trauma, perhaps even empathy. Yeah. Uh, but our sagas are so focused on the male experience. That it reinforces the notion that the uh, that the experiences of women are less significant, or that their trauma is less significant. Uh, but of course, this also reinforces the notion that the authors and the audiences are primarily male. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's terrible, no matter how one looks at it. And you know, I I know this is a sensitive conversation, and it's something difficult to talk about even today. But I think it's important to talk about these things. Uh, literature can be a valuable source of inspiration and reflection. And an important avenue for opening up difficult conversations. Yeah, I agree. Uh, now, moving back to Thord, he's taking the position that an assault on Olaf is a direct attack on Klup and mm-hmm. on the family. In political terms, he's right. Yeah, uh, Klup is a powerful figure in Hordaland, and King Sigurd's despicable act serves as a stark reminder of what he sees as the limits of Klup's authority. Yeah, and Thord's speech is designed to pose an important question to the audience. Introducing, I think, a major theme for this saga. How does one respond when honor demands retribution against a political superior? 
Mm-hmm. Thord's position is clear. Even though the odds are against us, it's better to lose our lives with honor, if that is our fate, he says, than to suffer such a, an insult without doing anything. Yeah, he's going to make a good Icelander, isn't mm-hmm. he? Yes, he is. Yeah, Thord may have been born in Norway, but he's an Icelander through and through. Now, inspired by Thord's speech, Klup gathers his brothers and a large band of men, and they march over to Upland, where they've heard King Sigurd was holding a feast. They surround the house, and Thord cries out that whoever enters last should come out first. That's an odd thing to say, but Thord is really encouraging the men to be bold and to rush into the fight. Yeah, the last one in is a rotten egg and all that. Exactly. So Klip enters the hall first, then Thor, then Steingrim, then Eilf, and then the rest of the men are following in. And when Klip comes before King Sigurd, he swings his sword quickly, striking down on the top of Sigurd's head and splitting him open down to the shoulders. We have just witnessed the assassination of a king in Norway. That's right. It's kind of a big deal. Um, And as soon as their target has been dealt with, Thor and his brothers quickly make their way back toward the door. But mm-hmm. Thord then hears a horrible crashing sound. And when he turns around, he sees that Clip has been dealt his death blow by Hrold Ogmunderson, another mm-hmm. grandson of Hordakari and a close kinsman of theirs that they hadn't seen when they came in. Yeah. Now, right. Hrold has... One of, one of, we should be clear, he's on, this is one of Sigurd's men. Yes. Right? He's their cousin, but he's, he's allied with, he's loyal to Sigurd. Exactly. Now, Hrold had also killed another of the Thorisons' men. Uh, and seeing this... Thord struck out at his kinsman and sliced Hrold in half just above the hips, which is going to become one of his signature moves. Yes, yes. But it's also important to note that in a moment like this, Thord sees no problem with killing a kinsman if his honor demands it. Well, and his uh, kinsman since, just killed his brother, so. Absolutely. Uh, but we'll we'll see later on in the saga that uh, he relies at times on other people not making that decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, by this point, all of Sigurd's men had their weapons in hand, and the Thordesons are now kind of really mired down and fighting their way toward the door. Thord puts the sword that King Gamla had given him to good use and hacks a path through his enemies toward the door. Without their lord to drive and organize them, Sigurd's men give in quickly, and they fail to chase Thord and his brothers once they flee out the door and back to their home, where Thord reports their adventure in verse. My words are of war waged by the shield walls whalemakers, where Klup smeared his sword in Gunnild's son's blood. Then in the hall was halted, hacked down by the helmet god. Wielding my weapon there, I worked death on four sword trees. Nicely done, Thord, and thank you for keeping count of all of that. Uh, <laughs> it's very handy when they put that in the verse, isn't it? Yeah, although I, I suspect the overall body count is higher than the four that he killed. Um, mm-hmm. Either way, news of yep. Sigurd's death travels fast and soon reaches the ears of King Harold Greycloak. And needless to say, he's not terribly happy about the death of his brother. And he quickly sets plans to have the Thordesons tracked and killed. But he's so far up north that the Thordesons have just enough time to make some plans. Yeah, they feel quite certain that staying in Hortholand is just no longer an option. Smart. Uh, King Harald and Queen Gunnild are simply too powerful to engage in open warfare with. Mm-hmm. And so Thord, Steingrim, Eolf, and Sigrid sell all their lands and agree to strike out and make a new life for themselves in Iceland. Mm. Yeah, Sigrid's uh, extremely attractive, I hear. And showy. And proud. Here we go again. Part three. A familiar face. 
Who's the uh, familiar face here? You don't know? <laughs> no. <laughs> Should I? Uh, yes. Uh, hold, hold on. Uh, let me set the scene first. No, who is it? So the th- No, no. Uh, the Thordersons and their sister set out for Iceland in early summer. Uh, they sail for nearly a month before arriving at the Westman Islands off the southern coast of Iceland, which suggests that they either had a very bad passage or they made a few stops along the way, since it should <laughs> not take more than a few days to get from Norway to Iceland. Yeah, but okay, uh, we'll assume that they decided to spend some of the summer in Ireland or something. That's my guess. Uh, uh, so they sail around the coast and then turn north, sailing around the West Fjords and on into a welcoming looking fjord. Shortly after landing, they're greeted by the locals who tell them that they've landed in Midfjord. Okay. Does that sound familiar, Andy? Midfjord, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've been there quite a few times. I think uh, pretty sure we stopped by there in uh, Gretisaga and probably some other ones. Yeah, we, we did, yes. Uh, just checking. Now, the date here must be sometime in the mid to late 960s, mm-hmm. by which time much of Iceland is already settled. Yeah. And the leading man in Midfjord at this date is called... Andy, you want to handle that? Me? Why? Why? It's uh, the saga. It's it's Skeggy. The saga mm-hmm. says yep. Skeggy. Skeggy. Yeah. Skeggy. Skeggy of Midfjord. Okay, you got me. What am I missing here? Why am I not? That doesn't ring a bell for me. Skeggy of Midfjord doesn't ring a bell? Listen, you meet one Skeggy, you met them all or something <laughs> like that. Uh, who, who's Skeggy? It's Skeggy of Midfjord. This is the guy who likes to pick through what merchants have brought before letting them stay in his land. Uh, that does sound a little familiar. Skeggy of Midfjord, the guy who went to Lera in Denmark, broke into the grave mound of Hrolf Kraki and stole the sword Skolfnung. The guy who took in Helga Barthdaughter after she floated to Greenland on a pack of ice. (laughs) Is that Skeggy? Yes. That's Skeggy. I already said Yes. It's that uh. Skeggy. It's the same one we've encountered so many times on Saga Pig. Oh, my God. Yeah. The same. I I do know who Skeggy of Midfjord is. And I read this whole damn saga and I didn't even. <laughs> it never clicked. This is the same Skeggy who lent Cormac the sword with all the crazy rules about how to unsheath it and when to use it in Cormac Saga. That's Skofnung. Yep. It's the same yeah. guy. He's a, He's kind of a staple saga figure if you've got characters wandering around in the north. Skeggy from Barth Saga, the one we literally just finished. Yeah, that's why I was surprised you hadn't made that connection. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I read the whole saga where Skeggy features quite prominently, I might add. I know. And I never, I just never made the connection. Yeah, now you know, you dingus. <laughs> well, one man's Skeggy is another man's Skeggy, as they say. <laughs> uh, it's hard to keep track sometimes, you know. I'm is good with, I knew where Midfjord was and all that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we'll oh, see. Well. Uh, moving forward. Skeggy is the Gothi of Midfjord and the surrounding districts. Mm-hmm. He has many children, but for the purposes of this story, the important one is a young boy called Aeth. And of now, course, you might remember Aeth as well from Barth Saga. He's the uh, the young man who spent a winter learning law from Barth and yeah. gaining himself the nickname of Law Aeth. And he's also, he was not allowed to come, both Skeggy and Aeth were not allowed to come to the, uh, the wedding feast. That was Correct. one of the rules. Yep. Oh, see, I do remember some things now that now that I'm, I'm, I'm with it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at the time of Thord's arrival in Midfjord, Aeth is being fostered by a local farmer named Thorkel, uh, a friend of Skeggy's who lives on the west side of the fjord. Now, his farm is called Sandar, and the Thordersons land on the east side of the fjord near a very good property known as Os, 
which was owned by a farmer named Eolf. So we've got Thorkettle and, and Eolf here. Right. Now, Eolf from Ulf is the first person to greet Thor, and he explains to him that Skeggy of Midfjord is the man in charge. Mm-hmm. Eolf also points out that Skeggy likes to, as we said, visit newly arrived ships and takes take whatever he fancies from their wares before inviting the ones he likes best to come stay with him. As you can imagine, Thor isn't impressed by this. I've heard that Skeggy of Midfjord is a very proud man, and I'm told that settlers here usually come to meet merchants who have just arrived by sea and ask them for news. Eolf shrugs this off and invites Thor to walk with him to go meet Skeggy, but Thor insists that he's going to stay with his ship. He's just been told this guy likes to come and take things from ships. This Now, this is the first of many subtle power plays between Thor and Skeggy. Mm-hmm. Now, as I interpret it, Thord believes that he's an important enough man coming from Norway that Skeggy should come to him and then offer him a place to stay for the winter. Or, better yet, graciously provide him with land to settle, uh-huh. which we've seen in many other sagas. So this is a sort of test to find out what kind of man Skeggy is and how he'll value or treat a man like Thord. Right. But as you're, as you're implying, this is also an opportunity to see what kind of a man Thord is. Mm-hmm. He's putting on a fair amount of shine for a teenager who's on the run. Yes. Uh, but but okay. Uh, so once Thor brushes him off, uh, Eolf makes like a good lackey and runs to tell Skeggy about the newly arrived men from Norway. Now Skeggy knows exactly who Thor is, for some reason, saying he's one of the most distinguished men to come to Iceland. But when Eolf asks Skeggy to ride back to the ship with him to welcome Thor to Midfjord, Skeggy balks. Yeah. He says, Hitherto I've found that you flatter me in all sorts of circumstances. I will allow you the honor of choosing which of the merchants you like, because I don't want to entertain any of these crewmen. But hear my warning. Only make Thord promises that you intend to keep, because he won't hesitate to bring down anyone who defies him. Right, yeah, I like that Skeggy here sets it up like he's offering Eolf some great honor, right? Allowing yeah. him to be the one to open his doors. Right, and Eolf is just dumb enough not to realize what's going on here. Right, now it's okay, so does that mean Skeggy is being shrewd or is he being petty here? I, a, a bit of both, I imagine, because, uh-huh. you know, as we know, Skeggy enjoys being the big man of Midfjord. And Thor represents a potential challenge to his long-established authority, depending on how the people receive him. So at the same time, I think, Skeggy is aware of what has happened in Norway, and he considers Thor a threat to the peace of the region, and perhaps to himself. So, Skeggy's strategy here is to just steer clear of Thor and see how things play out. That's my guess. Right. Uh, so, okay, so to return, uh, Eolf runs all the way back to the ship and reports his conversation to Thor, who is more than a little disturbed by what he hears. Yeah. Thor says, I, I take this to mean that Skeggy wants to pick a fight with me. Way to go, Eolf. Way to go. Now, to Eolf's credit, he encourages Thor to have an actual conversation with Skaggy before assuming anything. Yeah, I do like that. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not all... Let's not go just, jumping off. Just talk cock. to each other. Right. Uh, but Thor said he's not going to go groveling to Skaggy asking for shelter. Ugh. You see, the problem is that they've landed at the start of winter nights, and if they don't find housing soon, they're going to be left out in the cold for winter. Well, that's why you don't spend a month sailing from Norway. Exactly. Um, We've we've we were told that they left at late summer. I mean, I know <laughs> they really they really time. dragged their feet. They sure do. Uh, or no. or our our author has no idea how di- time works. That could be a problem well. I mean, that is also a distinct possibility. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. We're seeing the seasons seem to pass quickly or slowly depending on the needs of the narrative. Yeah. Uh, now 
Um, Skeggy, according to Thorth, is the sort of man who should be hosting a man of such noble lineage as mm-hmm. Thorth. But since he's refused, Thor is left to fend for himself. Now, Eolf, being the gentle and slightly gullible soul that he is, offers to let Thor stay with him. And, of course, Thor refuses. Mm-hmm. Instead, he asks if Eolf will rent him some land for the winter. Eolf obliges very kindly and gives him the farm at Os, where he currently lives, and he moves his own fa- family to Torfastadr, where he owns another farm. I just love that. I, I just imagine him going home. What an awkward conversation with his family. <laughs> oh, hi, everyone. Everyone gather around. I've got some important news. You see, a great man from Norway has just arrived, and I had the honor of greeting him. Oh, wonderful, dear. I do hope you invited him to dinner. Let's give him a, a, a proper welcome to Midfjord, huh? Ooh, ah, well, yeah, I've actually done something even better. He he is coming here for a while. Oh, you invited him to stay. What a great honor for us all to host such a man. Ah, yeah, well, yes, um, I I did mention that possibility, yes. (laughs) But, um, in the end, we we thought it best that we we let him rent the farm here at Oz. The, uh, the the farm here at, at Oz... This this farm, you mean? Mm. The one that we're living on? Yes, the very the very same, yes. But but think of it this way, darling. We've made a powerful friend, and just think of the rent money we'll be earning. Oh, Eolf. And see. <laughs> uh, two questions. One, is Eolf even married? <laughs> I mean, he, he must be. A rich mm-hmm. farmer like that with two properties. Yeah, why I not? I suppose. Uh, mm-hmm. And question two, is this the earliest reference to somebody getting uh, a, an Airbnb situation that requires <laughs> that they, like, leave town for the weekend? That's right. Like a last-minute booking where they suddenly have to go stay at their girlfriend's house? I think, uh, yeah. I, I uh, think that's that's true. This is the earliest reference to an Airbnb. It's, uh, anyway, uh, to return in seriousness, uh, uh, Ailf's decision does make some sense when you think of Ailf's position in this situation. Yeah, he may be doing well financially, but we've already seen the deference he shows to Skeggy. And now he's just encountered Thor, the man of even higher status than Skeggy. Hmm. Giving him his good farm at Ols is, I think, a calculated move for a man of his status. If Thor is pleased with this arrangement, well, it could pay off for a guy like Eolf somewhere down the road. Yeah, well, or maybe not. The the elite don't always appreciate what the little men do to make them more comfortable. Well, you can uh, say that again. Some of them, and again, we've seen that Thor has a certain amount of shine on him that he, he thinks is his right. Uh, some of them take for granted that that's the way things are supposed to be, right? The yeah. lesser man makes way for the greater. We never see that in America. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the question is, what kind of a man Thor is going to turn out to be? Well, perhaps we'll find out somewhere along the way in this saga. Mm. But for now... Thor settles into Os in Midfjord with his brothers and their sister Sigrid. Showy and proud. So showy and proud. Uh, we've seen so much evidence of that so far, right? Uh, showy all no. over the place. No, <laughs> not, a, not even a little. And speaking of proud, uh, Skeggy of Midfjord spends the winter keeping to himself. Uh, he avoids Thor as much as possible and doesn't speak to him whenever they cross paths. And he also pretends not to know about the th- bargain that Thor made with Eolf, uh, but I think he's definitely grumbling about it in private. I mean, it's an odd strategy, right? I mean, it's it's almost certain to deepen any animosity that Thor yeah. and Skeggy might already feel for each other. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that'll blow up at some point. Part four, 
An unlucky journey. So Thord and his siblings quickly settle into Midfjord. And that winter, they, they take part in the games, and Thord impresses the crowds with his strength and agility. Uh, and before long, Thord becomes quite popular in the district, which is exactly what Skaggy was worried about. Right. Now, the saga at this point kind of tips its hand a bit. Uh, you know, sagas normally don't tell us a lot about the internal kind of motivations right. of characters. This saga makes an exception here. It tells us that Skaggy is jealous of Thord's popularity and that he's growing concerned that Thord would want to make himself chieftain of Midfjord. Right. There's no indication that this is true, I think. But uh, Yeah, no. But I think it's a logical conclusion for Skeggy to have reached. Right, He's yeah, an ambitious man himself, and he sees ambition in others. Mm-hmm. He sees which way the winds are blowing, and he's upset at the prospect of being overshadowed. I agree, yes. Uh, now, Thord keeps himself busy that winter building a ferry down by Midfjord Estuary. In fact, mm-hmm. his uh, actions building things is going to become a part of his character. Like Gisli or Ref. Yeah. Uh, he, he spends most of his days down there working on the ferry so that it's going to be ready to join the spring fishing off of Strandir. Right. Now, at Yule, Skeggy is feeling festive and invites his friend Thorkel, the man who's fostering his son Aeth, to join him for the Yule feast. Mm-hmm. Thorkel and his wife prepare to leave Sandar on the day before Yule. They set out with Aeth to visit Skeggy's farm. Unfortunately, the weather had turned recently. Yeah. In addition to heavy rains, a thaw had set in, melting much of the snow, and this caused the ice in the upper part of Midfjord River to break up. Um, now, in normal conditions, Thorkel could have simply walked across the river, uh, but with the melt, the river itself became impassable. Uh, and John, I spent uh, a fair amount of time looking at the river um, mm-hmm. in Iceland, and now I want to just go there and hang out. It's so yeah. beautiful. Uh, great Andy, fishing. Uh- the the we are uh, eleven months into COVID lock ten months into COVID yeah. lockdown at this point, and I would go anywhere <laughs> where I could go and relax and maybe do a little fishing. <laughs> it would just be so beautiful. Well, anyway, uh, so the easiest route to Skeggy's farm at Rakir is cut off now. Um, mm-hmm. He could, the saga tells us, go back down to the fjord itself, um, where it's calmer, and use a boat to cross the fjord that way. But I get the impression that Thorkel and his wife and Aeth have already walked from Sandar down to the river to see about crossing. Uh, there's a boat there. Um, right. He decides that walking downstream to the fjord, finding another boat, rowing across, and then hiking back upstream to Rakir is too much work. Mm-hmm. And it's not that far, to be honest, if you look at a map. But Thorkel sets his mind to crossing the river in a boat here where the ice is breaking up and things are moving really fast. Right. Uh, now, Thor is down by the shore. He's working on his ferry project with his brother Stangrim when he sees Thorkel launching a boat with his wife and Aeth. Now, there's a reason why this is the spot where Thor has been asked to build a ferry. Yeah. It's a dangerous place to cross in a little boat. Uh, and, of course, he knows this, and so he calls out that the river is too dangerous to cross. Yeah, but Thorkel isn't having it. He he shouts back, you look after your little building project, and I'll worry about my journey. <laughs> and then Thorkel pushes the boat out into the river, and just as they reach the deepest part of that river, the freezing river, uh, the ice began to melt very quickly, breaking up and rushing down in huge chunks. And the boat is then caught in the current, uh, bashed by the ice, pushed downstream, and suddenly the boat is probably pinned just long enough to let the water rush over the side, and the boat capsizes. So Thorkel, his wife, and Skeggy's son Aeth all plunge into the freezing water. 
and Thorkel manages to grab them both and drag them to the keel of the boat, but they're all being pushed out into the fjord now on this fast current. Right, and now Thor and Stangrim watch all this, and as Thorkel floats by, Thor can't help himself. He, he calls out, Hey, Thorkel, I'll look after my building project, and you worry about your journey. <laughs> it's, it's a good line, but it it's, not, it's not cool. <laughs> it's not all. cool. And Stangrim agrees it's not cool. He says, Do the right thing, brother. Show off your swimming skills and help those people, because their lives depend on it. And I, I like that he appeals to his brother's sense of pride mm-hmm. here, goading him into action by stroking his ego, not right. his I sense mean, of morality. Yeah, I don't think you have to be around Thor very long before you realize that he's he's quite proud of himself in many yeah. ways. Uh, but it works, right? Thor uh, strips off his outer clothing and dives into the water. He swims out toward the boat, breaking ice as he goes and shoving it out of his path to clear clear away. I love that Isn't detail. It? Yeah, yeah. You could just yeah. say he swims he sort of, out there, but he's, right. he's a, a human icebreaker. Right. No, he's like dropping elbows on the ice as <laughs> yes. he goes just to uh, show it who's boss. Uh, now, when he reaches the boat, he grabs the boy, Aeth, first and swims back to shore. Mm-hmm. He tells Stangrim to warm the boy and then heads back out to the boat again. And this time he takes Thorkel's wife, who remains nameless, uh, and he brings her to shore. And finally, he swims out one more time to rescue Thorkel, who's on the verge of death by this time because of the cold. Yeah. And when he returns, finally, Stangrim asks him why he rescued the boy first. <laughs> yeah, now Thor uh, may be proud, but he's he's got a brain on him. And he says, I brought Aeth back first because something tells me that this young man will be very useful to me and will save my life. I brought Thorkel back last because I thought he would be best able to stand the cold. Yeah, you know, he's actually right about that, but only kind of. Because uh, I, I looked into this. Women's core temperature is higher than men's on average. Um, and that means they will succumb to <laughs> hypothermia more slowly. Yes, I'm sure that's exactly what Thord was thinking. But the, the the problem is that while their core temperature might be higher and they may resist hypothermia longer, their extremities, their hands and feet, oh tend to cool at a much faster rate than men's, again, on average. So this means that they will lose the ability to swim or to hold on to the debris, keeping them afloat faster than men. So while Thord is wrong that Thorkel could withstand the cold better than his wife... He's right that Thorkel could survive longer in water clinging to that boat. I feel like you're playing into a lot of stereotypes about men and women. I looked into science, uh, John. I, I, I understand that... Now, um, granted, it was it was Google Web Science, but it was right. science. I, I understand that men clinging to boats uh, upturned in icy rivers are also less likely to ask for directions. <laughs> uh, now... I don't know if Thor is really thinking all that hard about the relative core temperatures of men and women, to be honest. Uh, he does add, well, plus I, I thought Thorkel's death would be the least loss. Aha, uh-huh. there you have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's the kicker. Uh, it's maybe the most important event of the saga that happens at this point. Uh, hit me with it. I'm ready. What's the most important event? Uh, okay, well, Thorkel and his wife change their clothes and they soon feel much better and warmer. Wait, wait, <laughs> that's it? No, they change their no, clothes? No, just, be patient. Okay. They can. They prepare to continue on to Skeggy's farm at Rekir, but Aeth doesn't go with them. But why not? Ah, because Thor has invited young Aeth to come and stay with him uh-huh. at Ulse, and Aeth gladly accepts. So let me get this straight. Aeth is going to wave off Thorko, his foster father, and uh-huh. send him on his way to Skeggy, his real father's Yule feast. That's right. And then he's going to go spend some time, quality time with his father's rival, Thor. That's exactly what Aeth is going to do, yes. I do not think Skeggy's going to like this one bit. 
Um, well, the problem is, as we've seen from Barth's saga and this saga, Aeth is a young man who's desperate for a male role model. He really right? is. I mean, he, he clings to Barth for a winter to learn law. He's been following this idiot Thorkel around for a while. You're right. And now here's Thor, uh, elbow dropping ice flows uh, and proving himself <laughs> to be quite the man. Uh, and now Aeth has clung to him. Right? Uh, this is a young man who really needs a father figure. <laughs> he really does. Uh, well, Skeggy's right there. Right. But speaking of Skeggy, I yeah. imagine he's going to be rather upset when he finds out that Aeth's newest father figure is, in fact, Thord. Yeah. Well, he is upset. So when Thorkel shows up without Aeth and tells Skeggy about the unlucky journey, well, Skeggy has a premonition that he's going to come to wish that Aeth had never encountered Thord. Mm-hmm. But surely the foster relationship Aeth has with Thorkel carries some weight? Uh, you might think so, but when Yule is over and Thorkettle stops uh, back at Ols to pick up his foster son, Aeth says, I'm not going with you. That's the last time you're going to try to kill me. No. <laughs> and Thorkel uh, sort of glumly responds, well, I would no more have killed you than myself. Which is technically true. They were all going to die. Right. Exactly as likely to kill Thor as himself. Yeah. Uh, so Thorkel heads home without Aeth and he's now out of the story. Yes. But the real story is only beginning. Ooh, very nice. Part 5. Gamla's Gift. Now, Thor and Aeth get along very well, with Aeth following his new foster father around like an eager puppy. As I said, Aeth is a man who really, really wants a father figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Thor is equally taken with Aeth and enjoys spending time with him. And then one day when they're working together on the ferry... Aeth picks up Thor's short sword, Gamli's gift, remember, the the sword that he received from King Gamli, and he begins playing with it. Thor notices and says, Do you like my short sword, foster son? (laughs) Now, uh, what boy wouldn't like a cool short sword like that? That would be pretty awesome. Now, going against King Gamli's advice, Thor offers to give the sword to Aeth. Hold on now. Wait a minute. Gamli made a very big deal mm-hmm. out of giving that sword to Thor, and he was very specific about how it should be handled. Well, okay, to be, to be clear, what he said was that Thor should not give the sword to anyone or part with it unless he's in danger of losing his head. And he also did say, you'll have cause to remember this. I think what's happening here is that Thor anticipates further trouble with Skeggy, and he sees Aeth as a way of avoiding that fate, right? Avoiding a kind of a death at the hands of his rival. Um, now is probably a good time, by the way, for you to share what you told me earlier about Aeth's name. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you don't run into the name Aeth in the sagas very often at all. I mm-hmm. understand that there's a, uh, a former footballer and coach in Iceland uh, called Aether. But uh, yeah, this Aeth or Aether um, in proper Icelandic, he does appear in the Lanama book a few times. Uh, but this Aeth is the only one with that name to appear in either the Lanama book or the sagas. So the name Aether also functions as a noun. Uh, the word Aether means mm-hmm. oath. And I can understand a father giving that name to his son. Uh, there's a, a sacredness to such a name and a much hoped for bond maybe. that uh, Right. <laughs> uh, but one that Skeggy isn't getting now that Thor is around. Yeah, so much for that bond. Um, and, and that conflict between Skeggy and Thor leads me to another possibility for the significance of Aether's name. Um, while Aether works as Oath, there is another word in Icelandic, Aeth, uh, that has a completely different meaning. 
Uh, an eighth is an isthmus, which is a funny word to say in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, an isthmus, uh, a narrow strip of land with water on both sides that connects two larger bodies of land. Right. So, metaphorically. So you're suggesting cool. that eighth uh, Skegison functions as just that kind of link between Skeggy and Thor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it exactly. Thor and Skeggy are two important figures in this territory, both with massive egos. Um, and as we'll see, Aeth or Aether in Icelandic is going to serve as a buffer that effectively separates the two, but keeps them from clashing with one another and also keeps them bonded through their affection mm-hmm. for him. It's a reasonable suggestion. I think if we're, you know, if we're looking for ways to play out this guy's name, we've also got the fact that he's called Law Aeth in yeah. Barth Saga, which would mean Law Oath. Mm-hmm. Which is also an interesting way of thinking about his name. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's not a nickname, so I don't feel like I'm stepping on your toes, am I? No, not you at good? all. Not at all. Okay. By all means. Hey, if you want to start doing the nickname section, I'd be more no, than good. happy to sit back and let you do I'm it. I'm good. To I'm snark good. while you do all the work. I'm uh, good. I have di- I dipped my toes in here and I there. I know but... you have. I know you have. Um, feel free to dip the rest of you in. Honestly, uh, there, there's one coming up that I do have some some thoughts on. <laughs> Good. But we'll get we'll get to him later. I'm always happy to tag in. Now, as we've said, uh, Thor is smart. He's positioning Aeth between himself and Skeggy, right? and he he clearly perceives Skeggy as a threat in Midfjord. Mm-hmm. By giving Aeth the sword, Gamla's gift, he's effectively cementing a bond of mutual obligation between himself and Aeth. Yeah. Going forward, Savvy. he's trusting that he can rely on Aeth to defend him against his father, should that become necessary. A very clever maneuver on Thor's part. And while it's certainly, it is a calculated move, I don't doubt that his affection for Aeth is also genuine. No, it seems to be. Right? The text gives us no reason to think it's anything else. Right. Uh, now, Aeth, being a, a young man who's just been given a very impressive sword, is so excited that he runs around showing everyone his fancy that. new toy. Uh, now, before long, he's arranged a visit with his father. Yeah, it's his first visit with Skeggy since he started living with Thord, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and as you might imagine, Skeggy would like some answers. Uh, he asks Aeth to explain his decision to unilaterally break the fosterage arrangement that Skeggy made with Thorkel in favor of this new arrangement with Thord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Aeth says, well, Thord's an important man, and I might do well out of a relationship with a man like that. Thorkel is petty and foolish, but... He might have even killed me through his rashness and stupidity, but Thor saved my life and gave me a rich treasure besides. Right. Now, Skeggy isn't initially impressed by this explanation, and he defends Thorkel. But Skeggy hasn't seen the gift that Thor gave his son yet. So he asks mm-hmm. Aeth to show it to him. And when Aeth unsheathes Gamli's gift, Skeggy is struck by its beauty. But he's still suspicious. I don't believe he gave you such a rare treasure without expecting something in return. And Aeth is frustrated by his father's warning and dismisses it altogether, harboring yet more resentment against him. Mm -hmm. So when he leaves his father's farm, uh, you know, there aren't many fond farewells between them. Right now, Andy, you and I are both fathers. Uh, We are. You know, we got to feel for Skeggy a little bit here. I do. He's old enough and certainly smart enough to see what's happening here. Right, that that Thor is essentially bribing this boy to take his side in future yeah. conflict. Uh, he's been suspicious of Thor since he arrived and wary of his temperament, and now he sees his son falling under this man's spell and being pulled further and further away from him. 
Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, say what you want about Skeggy's attitude toward Thor when he first got there, uh, his handling of the situation, but Aid's rejection of him in favor of Thor, it's heartbreaking and yep. deeply personal. And we're going to see that knife being twisted uh, repeatedly in the future. Yeah. Uh, but of course, Thor realizes all this when he hears about Aid's visit with his father. He says, I think your father is keen to pick a fight with me. See? And something tells me that there is more unpleasantness to come between your father and his kinsmen and me. You, Aeth, will often have to act as a go-between and at much risk to yourself. Hmm. Aeth wishes that he could bring about some sort of understanding between the two, but that seems impossible at this stage. Well, both men at this point are too proud to even speak with one another. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let that be a lesson to all of you out there. Don't harbor grudges and fuel suspicions with false assumptions. Get out there and squash the enmity. Communication is the key to a sustainable peace. Any, more fortune, any more fortune cookies you want to throw yes. at us? <laughs> it's easier said than done, Andy. Yeah, it is. Part six. A gentleman caller. Time to introduce a new character to help move the action along. Because a visitor comes to Midfjord that summer, a man called Asbjorn, the nephew of Skeggy of Midfjord. Now, going back to formulas and building tension, anyone who's read a saga can probably predict where this is headed. I mean, sure, but let's not spoil it. Of course not, but our listeners know, John. They know. I'm sure they do. Uh, now, when Skeggy hears that his nephew has arrived, he rides out to the ship with a warm greeting and an offer for Asbjorn to come stay with him. Yeah, yeah, that that is very gracious of him, and it's far more than he did for Thor. Yeah. Imagine how different the saga would have been if he had done that. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, no, this is very clearly, right? there's a difference between how he treats family and how he treats uh, yeah. uh, what we call bondsmen, tradesmen. Uh, <laughs> right. uh yeah, it wouldn't be much of a saga at all uh, if he'd done things differently, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. Besides, Osborne is his kinsman, right? So it's a different situation. True, true. But Thor is an important man from a prominent Norwegian family. Uh, where's the respect? Thor is a 15 or 16-year-old r- refugee from a Norwegian feud is what he is. He may also he's... have some <laughs> some claim to uh, high family back in Norway. But right now, he's... He's a man mm-hmm. on the run. Uh, yeah. Besides, Skeggy's not the kind of Icelander to go groveling at the feet of a big Norwegian who's come to demand respect the way Thor did. Right? Think about this saga from that other perspective, and suddenly we see this as an Icelander who's made good mm-hmm. being asked to be deferential to a snotty teenager from Norway. Exactly. Who says, do you know who my father exactly. is? Exactly. My daddy was much more important than you. Yeah. Uh, now, but as we said, also in the saga, Osbjorn is Skeggy's nephew, so it makes sense that he would welcome him with open arms. Right, right, right. And Osbjorn naturally accepts this invitation. He has his ship pulled up onto its rollers, and he rides back to Rekir with two of his men uh, to stay with his uncle. Yeah, no, Osbjorn seems like a nice enough guy at first. He does. At first. Uh, he's tall, he's handsome, he's well-respected, he's quite strong. Um, uh-huh. Oh, and he likes to go down to the hot spring and relax. Ah, I love that. I love that detail because you don't see it in the sagas very often. Mm-hmm. Mentions of the hot springs and bathing. And I got to tell you, it's a fine thing to do. When uh, when we visited Iceland for the conference, the saga conference back in 2018, yep. the first place I visited after leaving Reykjavik was the uh, Reykjadalur hot spring thermal river. And uh, 
I hiked up that river with my brother-in-law, Dan, and we enjoyed a nice warm soak in the river. And man, it's hard to top the scenery out there <laughs> and the water's so perfect. Man, I could get used to that. Yeah, we got to get back to Iceland, Andy. We got to go. I'm ready. But, uh, you know, for now, let's let's see this about Osbjorn. We've got nothing against him. And the saga gives no indication that he's going to be a problem as he enters the story. It's a good opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one day, Asbjorn and Skeggy go to the spring for a soak, as they do. Here it comes, right? <laughs> yeah, no, they're they're just enjoying a relaxing day with the hot spring. Nothing, no problem. Uh-huh. Uh, now, at some point, they get out and they sit on the bank of the spring chatting. And that's when Sigrid, Thord's sister, uh-huh. comes over from Alst to do the washing. See, there it is. Now, you may have heard somewhere uh, through the rumor mill that Sigrid is both proud and showy. And the saga also mentions that uh, Osbjorn likes him a showy woman. Sure. It's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange detail to include, but there you go. It sure is. Uh, now, Sigrid is... Uh, now, remember, she's here to do the laundry. Yeah. Uh, and she's dressed in a red gown with a black cloak. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's... Really, she's put on her best to go yeah. down to the river and beat shirts. You never know who's going to be down at the spring. That's time. right. That's right. Uh, we said, you know, proud and showy. Uh, she is, as the saga reminds us, a very striking woman, tall and attractive. Yeah. And Osbjorn can't help himself. He props himself up on one elbow and looks over his shoulder at her. And Sigrid notices him looking, but doesn't say anything it's it's one of the most interesting flirtations mm-hmm. that i've ever seen in in the sagas this idea of her washing and noticing him looking she's looking but not looking mm-hmm. you well, know let's i think it's interesting that because that, we can assume that it's flirtation but it is an assumption right it uh, is. we're seeing this from asborn's perspective right this is a very male gaze moment uh, he sees her and sees her looking back but not saying anything and takes that as an enticement, takes that as right. a return of his interest. It could also just be, oh, God, he's staring. Very <laughs> uh, <laughs> well could. But she's proud and showy. Right. John. Right. So, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. So Sigrid eventually finishes washing up and leaves for home. Uh, Aspirin at that point turns to Skeggy and asks who that pretty woman was, adding, she just might win my heart. Pretty woman. Oh, dear. Washing all the laundry. Pretty what? woman. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, Skeggy. Do we have royalties then... on that, or is that, uh, is that fair use? I think that's fair use. I said Great. laundry, so Great. we're good. Oh, right. It's parody. Yeah. Now, Skeggy tells him that Sigrid is the daughter of Thor, the son of Hordakari, and he adds, mm, I advise you to have nothing to do with that woman. Her brothers are fierce, violent men. Do you think they would spare you if you crossed them, given that they killed King Sigurd Sleva, son of King Eric Bloodaxe? And Asbjorn isn't moved by this. He just says, I thought I'd be my own master in this country. There's that independent spirit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But uh, Skeggy isn't having it. Uh, He says, we'll see how independent you are when they finish with you. (laughs) <laughs> and so their day at the hot spring ends on a sour note. Right. And we should note that Skeggy has finally dropped another clue about why he chose not to greet Thor and his brothers when they arrived in Midfjord the previous week. Yes. Yes. There's a certain amount so. of risk in welcoming and harboring enemies of the Norwegian crown, especially if that includes Gunnild, the mother of kings. 
Right. Yeah. This is uh, something we saw in uh, Ale Saga when uh, mm-hmm. Scott Legrim invited Bjorn Brynjolfsson, uh, right. who had eloped with Thora of the Embroidered Hand. Remember, they were on the run from powerful men in Norway, including Thorir the Hairseer and King Harald Fairhair. But they didn't tell Scott Legrim uh, about this bounty on Bjorn's head, and they stayed with him in, Bjor- in Borg all winter before finally admitting to the danger that they actually put him in. Right. Now, if Skeggy of Midfjord had heard rumor of the Thordeson's attack on King Sigurd, then he would also know that Gunhild and Harald Greycloak would be absolutely gunning for Thor. Mm-hmm. So rather than borrow trouble, he opted to give Thor the cold shoulder. See, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. If all Skeggy knows of Thor is what he heard about the encounter with King Sigurd, then he's probably going to assume that he's a dangerous individual who will bring bad luck and chaos wherever he goes. And mm-hmm. John, if I'm honest, he's not wrong. We've already established that Thor is a proud man. Look how he constantly assumes Skeggy's begging for a fight. Mm-hmm. Maybe Skeggy's just looking to avoid conflict. I mean, unfortunately for Skeggy, he keeps getting drawn closer and closer. Right? He's being pulled into Thor's sphere of influence, no matter how hard he tries to avoid it. Yeah. His own son has chosen Thor as a foster father, and now his nephew Asbjorn is infatuated with Thor's sister. Say what you want about Skeggy. I feel for the guy. What a mess. Meanwhile, Sigrid has uh, arrived back home in Os, and when Thor sees her, he says, Why why are you so pale, sister? It looks like Asbjorn's cesspool hog has taken the color from your cheeks. There's the one. Cesspool hog is is. a great nickname. (laughs) I I liked it so much that I... This is one I had to look up. Yeah, no, I I looked it up too, but it's my job. Well, I mean... I know we're going to cover it in judgments, but let's do this one now because I have some thoughts about this nickname and we need to decide what we're going to call him for the rest of this vignette. Spoiling my fun. This is like one of our best options. Well, Uh, we can review it, you know. uh, It's fine. It's fine. Okay. The nickname in Old Norse is Vesugalti. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Literally, it's a galtu, uh, a hog of the Vesa, the pool of stagnant water. Uh, so cesspool isn't entirely accurate, uh, more like backwater uh, or mm. eddy or or uh, still water, but it gets the idea. Okay. Yeah. See, so yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's accurate, but not entirely accurate. So I came up with an alternative. Uh-huh. Okay, uh-huh. let's hear it. Well, in Cleesby Vigfusen, Vesa is also translated as pool of stagnant water, as you suggested. Now, a stagnant pool of water doesn't really roll off the tongue right so you can't call him uh you know which is why they didn't call him that well exactly yeah it doesn't work but but hear me out uh stagnant water is pretty nasty right Mm -hmm. and that's at the core of this insult so you ready for this Uh uh-huh what about asbjorn the funky water hog huh that's a good nickname (laughs) Funky water. Asbjorn the funky water hog, huh? Nice. Asbjorn cesspool hog it is. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> man. So so what happens next? Do Thord and Asbjorn throw hands over this? No, no, no. Not exactly. Not immediately. Not exactly and not immediately. There's a, a contradiction in there somewhere, John. It's a qualification. Uh, ah, I see. Asbjorn doesn't really pursue the matter at all. Not immediately. Neither does Sigrith. And soon it's winter and all's quiet. Until? Well, I mean, there is the small matter of some winter games. A, a friendly ball game that's called on the ice of Midfjord between Rekir and Os. 
I like that. There's, you know, the 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 fjord freezes over there mm-hmm. a little bit, and they they go out and play games. Yep. I think that's that's pretty. Yeah, cool. it's a. It looks like it's pretty solid now. We can go yep. out and have some yep. fun. We're gonna get out there and slide the yep. old puck around. Yep. Uh, now it's not going to shock anyone listening to hear that both Thor and Asbjorn are involved in the games. And what about Skeggy? Is he out there? Yeah. Now the saga tells us he's getting a bit old to participate in the games, mm-hmm. uh, but he's still perfectly capable of wielding a sword. Interesting detail to include there, I think. Yeah, you, you kind of get the feeling like the like Skeggy is turning to the author and saying, "No, no, 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 no. I can still, I can still wield a sword." Uh, so. One day, Thord and Asbjorn are matched against each other in a game. Remember, both men are exceedingly strong, so it's a good matchup. At some point, Thord manages to catch hold of Asbjorn, and he throws him down so hard that his body makes a crunching sound on the ice. Uh, and then Thord taunts him, saying, Looks like the cesspool hog has fallen. Now, Asbjorn plays it cool. He doesn't say anything. And then a bit later, when they're matched against each other again, Asbjorn tackles Thor, bringing him to his knees. Yeah, he stands over Thor and says, There goes Downy Cheeks. You weren't quite <laughs> ready to play with the grown-ups, were you? You'll find out which one of us is looking up at the other after we've tried our hands at armed combat, Cesspool Hog. <laughs> uh, the voice for Thor. I mean, the whole saga, you're going to have to do that. And it's... <laughs> It's terribly annoying, and it's well, ruining my... Well, he's going my... to grow up. I mean, right I now, so. he's still a young man. He's going <laughs> I to... Hope so. By the next episode, he'll have... Uh, his voice will have dropped an octave. I, I like that that's your impression of what a young young man sounds like. I, it's my impression of what this young man sounds like. <laughs> this, this 15-year-old who shows up and starts demanding that the local chieftain genuflect before him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that at this age, Thor's got a little growing up to do. <laughs> Well, at the he's gonna uh, do it. He's gonna grow up. I I trust it. I trust it. So so Osborne's uh, uh, just been insulted again and called mm-hmm. cesspool hog uh, or funky water hog, and he rushes over to grab his weapons. But the people of Mithyord intervene. They get in between the two men. They stop the fight, and they have to go right. their separate ways. Right, and and nothing else of note happens that winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the spring, Osborne returns to his ship and begins preparations for his next voyage. Skeggy accompanies him with a large band of men, assuming that. Thor might well choose to ambush them at any time. Yeah, that's Skeggy. Always suspicious of Thor. And uh, I suppose now he's got a good reason to be nervous. He does. uh, But before Asbjorn sets sail, he stops to speak with Uncle Skeggy, saying that he's thinking about getting married soon. Oh, how nice. Mm -hmm. And Skeggy asks who he's interested in, no doubt hoping he's found a a nice girl from a good family to settle down with. Mm Mm-hmm. But Asbjorn hasn't been able to help himself. He explains that his heart is fixed on Sigrith, Thord's sister. Yeah, and Skeggy says, I don't think we're very likely to be granted that. And I'm not keen to raise the matter with Thord, given the resentment between the two of you in the past. Right, now Asbjorn is not going to be deterred by that. He says the fight between them was not a serious matter. Right? I mean, no blood was spilled. And he'd hate to lose a good match on account of something so petty. I actually uh, like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so Skeggy promises his nephew that he will pursue the betrothal, but it's against his better judgment. Yes, but he also encourages Osbjorn to continue on his journey, saying, there's no reason you should abandon your voyage on account of this. Right, in other words, why don't you get out of Iceland before I ask Thor <laughs> yes, for his yes. sister's hand on your behalf? And so Osbjorn sets sail, and Skeggy rides home. 
Right. Now, not long. By the way, we should also say that Skeggy does not immediately pursue. He does not. Betrothal. He doesn't. He's actually... looking. He's looking for the right moment. Right. Right. He's playing the long game. Yeah. Uh, no. Soon after Asbern leaves, an, another ship, a merchant ship, arrives in Borgafjord. Uh, now, a lot of people in Midfjord and the surrounding districts make plans to travel south to do business with those traders. Right. And Skeggy quickly makes preparations to ride to Borgafjord, uh, gathering a large group of men to accompany him on the ride. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, Eve, uh Skeggy's son, hears about the ship's arrival and all the excitement over it in the district. And he approaches Thor and asks if he'll be going too. Thor admits he's not so well off that he can ignore a new ship and that he doesn't need supplies. And he does. Uh so Aeth is excited to hear this, and he asks if he can go too, if only to see firsthand how the markets work and maybe to swan about with his new short sword on his hip. Right. Uh, now, the thought of Aeth accompanying him on this trip is reassuring to Thor. He says, something tells me I'm going to need you on this trip, if my dreams are anything to go by. Ugh. You know what that means. Yeah. It's time for some saga thing dream interpretation. Oh, God. Tell us about your dream, Thor. Dear Lord. Go for it, Thor, to share your dream. I'll bet it's even prophetic. Well, I dreamed that I arrived in Vita at Horgafjord and was talking to some foreigners about business and such. Suddenly, to my great horror, a large pack of wolves came into the booth. They lunged at me and tried to kill me. They tore off my clothes, but I drew my sword and chopped one of the wolves in half and then cut another one's head off. Ooh, that sounds serious. It was. It's really scary, but it gets worse. Ooh, go on, go on. Well, that's that's when the wolves charged at me from all sides. But I stood my ground as best I could, even though I was getting tired and I didn't know what might happen to me. You must have been on the verge of death itself. But then, all of a sudden, a bear cub ran in front of me and tried to protect me. And that's when I woke up. I think this was a portentous dream. I'd say so. And Aid here agrees. Uh, I do, do, we, do we have to waste any time dream interpreting? Do we? Uh, no, no. I, I would say that one's pretty pretty obvious. But uh, mm. it does increase the tension, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah. I do want to just say as an aside here that uh, I'm aware of how awful Thor's voice is right now. <laughs> and he is going to grow up. I feel like you, uh, you, you committed to it early. And Again, now you're realizing your mistake. He's, he's a young teen. He's he's got he's got some growing up to do. At this point, now he's in his late teens. We should probably have his voice drop at some point. I, I think the the problem here is um, I definitely wouldn't want him as Thingman just based on his voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, his his acne is going to come in and his voice is going to drop by the time we get to the uh, the next passage. <laughs> I, I, I sincerely hope so. All right. Now, uh, Aeth suspects that evil minds are at work against Thor, and he encourages him to set out at the same time as Skeggy, even though they aren't on speaking terms. It's an interesting scenario. Is Aeth setting up a medieval Icelandic parent trap? Hmm. Maybe. Let's get together. (laughs) Before they leave, Sigrith approaches her brother and asks him to buy her a very fine cloak at the market. I mean, word on the street is she's very showy, that Sigrith. And proud. Now, Thor promises to buy the cloak, but he adds, something tells me, see, his voice is now dropped. Something, he, he got older since the, <laughs> since the battle. <laughs> Mid-conversation. Something tells me we'll have to pay a very high price for the cloak before we're finished. 
I still hate him. Uh, but it does sound wow. like we've got something to look forward to in the next section, and that's cool. Part 7. The Price of a Cloak. Now, as promised, Thord and Aeth depart for Borgafjord at the same time as Skeggy. They ride together and even share the same booth when they arrive. Things are cool between them, but they're at least coexisting without conflict. And at this point, the saga introduces a few new characters. The first is a rich man from Fossafell. Uh, he's called John, or Jon. And he's an unpopular man, known to be a bit of a troublemaker. So you get a sense of where he's uh, headed in this saga. Uh-huh. He's got a wife called Gudrun. And get this, John. She's said to be rather proud and showy. Proud and showy? Surely not. Hmm, yep. And she has a brother called Alof. Uh, now, John and uh, I, I'm going to keep saying John. Should I say Yon? What do you want me to do to here? You. You're the, up to you. I, out of deference to you with the name, what do you want me to say? <laughs> uh, I would say uh, John is fine, given that we anglicize most of the names on this podcast. I mean, we are pretty inconsistent in that going back and forth, but uh, sure. Then call um, him now, uh, Yon Yonson. Yon Yonson from, from Wisconsin. Wisconsin. He works mm-hmm. in the lumber mill there. I hear he walks down the street. All the people he meets say, "Hey there, what's your name?" <laughs> <laughs> all right, now uh, Jon and Aldolf plan to ride together to Borgafjord uh, to see what goods the ships might have brought, just like everyone else. And that's a really cool detail in the mm-hmm. saga that you don't see too often. This idea of a, a ship coming in, a merchant ship, and everyone from the nearby districts getting right. excited and rushing over. Yeah, to no, see I, what I like goods that's really that's carried through the story that you know that this is big news when this happens. When this happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth noting that we're because we're now right. We said this is in the nine sixties, nine seventies. Right, we're past that generation that enjoyed the abundance of Iceland when they arrived. Absolutely, we're now yeah. in that generation that's dealing with. Oh no, we we clear cut the place, and now we're all like on the verge of starvation and don't have any wood. Right, like, ships from Norway, ships from anywhere yeah. are a big. It's deal. It's a very yeah. different situation in the mid tenth century than it had been fifty years earlier. Absolutely. So just as Jon and Aldolf are setting out, Gudrun approaches them and asks her husband to buy her a good cloak because, as we said, she's proud and showy. Oh, I hope there isn't a shortage of fine cloaks at the market. Well, Jon and Aldolf promise to do their best. And when they arrive at Vitafeller, where the uh, market is located, uh, they quickly start exploring the various booths that have been set up there. And soon they find the perfect cloak for Gudrun in a booth of a man called Thorir the Wealthy. This is another detail that I really like, by the way. I just want to... Yeah? This idea that it's not just a ship that pulls up and sort of they they have their stuff there on the ship. They actually set up a little, like, bazaar. Right? They're, Uh, they're, They're setting up little sort of shop fronts uh, to sell different mm-hmm. kinds of things, or there may even be independent merchants who all have their goods yeah, exactly. coming off of the ship, and now they're setting up individual sort of tables. Uh, it's a really yeah. interesting. It's it's as you said, it's an angle we don't often get to see, but you're really right. kind of getting this a saga, feel for how this Icelandic economy depends on these imports from Norway. It's one of the things I like about this saga, and I think it's worth kind of dwelling over some of the details because the saga gives us so much more detail yeah. about daily life. Uh, little glimpses, little snapshots mm-hmm. that most sagas just kind of gloss over. Yep. Um, so it, it's pretty cool. Uh, but here's another interesting detail. When these two farmers who live kind of between Borgafjord and um, mm-hmm. and Midfjord, um, they, so they're kind of in this Midlands area, 
when they ask how much this cloak is, Thorir looks them over and says, it's probably too expensive for them. Oh, wow. And so they're pr- he, this guy's pretty womaning them. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, honestly, the, the cloak is. He sets a very, very high mm-hmm. price. Um, and Yon hears this and immediately turns it down, thinking that this is far too expensive. Uh, Guthrun would be mad at me if I bought such a, a cloak. Um, but once they get outside the booth, Aldolf approaches him and insists that they go back in and buy it mm-hmm. for Guthrun. Even offering to throw cash in himself because he promised his sister that she could have the cloak. Um, even together, though, they realize they don't have enough money. And so Yon and Aldolf decide that they need to ride home real quick to get the money. And it's not that close. Right. Um, and they're going to come back and buy the cloak when they have the money. Right. It's very nice of them. But to me, the immediate response should have been, all right, so we just agreed to tell her that there were no cloaks available, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they didn't have any. It's crazy. Uh, but uh, so the two of them ride off. And while they're away, two more men enter the booth of Thor the Wealthy looking for a fine cloak. Mm-hmm. It's Thor than Aeth. And as luck would have it, they spot the very same cloak. Presumably there's just like Who would have one cloak on a table. Well, uh, it does indicate they have multiple cloaks. Right, right. The saga says right. there's many but cloaks. But only one but they... really nice one. Exactly. Uh, now, Thorir recognizes Thor and says he knew his parents well. Uh, remember, this is a Norwegian ship. right? So he offers and... to give the cloak to Thor as a gift. And it's a, a generous gift from a stranger. Yeah, it is. And again, you know, I I know like you object to this little Lord Fauntleroy voice that I've given Thor, but <laughs> you're really getting the sense here that he's coming from a life of kind of pampered privilege. You know, yeah. his his family is friends with people who are snootily driving up the prices of cloaks when they see rough-handed farmers come in. But now Thor walks in and the cloak's a gift. It's a it's he's obviously li- used to living in a very different world than most of these Icelanders are. He is. And and he, he you know, there's a nice contrast there between the world of Norway, the world of continental Europe, the, you know, the rest of the world yeah. and what's going on in Iceland. Absolutely. Uh, and but to his credit, uh, Thor, who's who is learning the ways of Iceland, he accepts the cloak, but he insists on paying for it. Nice guy, Thor. Yeah. I like, like it. He's learning. Uh, the only problem is he doesn't have enough money on him either. <laughs> So nobody has enough money for this cloak. Uh, and so he heads back to his booth with Aeth to get the money. Yeah. So at least, you know, they've got the money. Right. There. Right. Yeah. And shortly after he leaves, Jon and Aldolf return with the money that they've collected to pay for that cloak. And even though the cloak is still there in the booth, Thorir looks at them and says that he's already sold the cloak while they were out scrounging up the cash. Yeah. Jon is insulted and he insists that he's going to have that cloak no matter what. Right. I, can't, I I feel like Thor at this point is just, you know, he's that snooty. He's the guy in Ferris Bueller's day off who refuses to seat Ferris Bueller and his friends at the, yes. at the luncheon. Right? He's just, you're Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. Yes. It's, that, That's exactly this who this guy This attitude that this guy's giving them is just ludicrous. Uh, he's so kind and so polite to Thor. Oh, by all means, yeah. it's a gift. Take it as a gift. And these guys are just getting absolutely dunked on. Yeah. Uh, now, Thor and Aeth come back in, in the middle of this conversation. They've got the money to buy the cloak. And Thor sees what's happening, and he grabs the cloak. Aldolf now d- draws his sword, and he readies a blow. And at the same time, Jon draws his sword, Jon, excuse me, draws his sword, and he lunges at Thor. 
Like two ravenous wolves, one might say. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I want to remind you that this is all happening inside a kind of makeshift storefront in a little kind of hutch, right? This is, it's very close quarters and every kind of awkward situation for a fight. Thor, of course, anticipated this was going to happen and he draws his own sword as well. And with one quick cut, he lops off Aldov's head. So much for him. Yeah. A, in the meantime, sees Yon lunging toward Thor, then rushes forward. He brings his shield up between Thor and Yon's strike. And as Yon's sword bounces off A's shield, Thor turns and cuts him into at the waist. As you said, that's kind of his move. Yeah. Now, as soon as Alf and Yon hit the floor, their companions realize what's happened, and they rush at Thor, attacking him like a pack of wolves. It's getting crowded in this booth. <laughs> yes, it is. Now, Thorth maneuvers himself out of the tent mm. and manages to climb on a pile of rafters nearby, which I assume are there for building booths and stuff oh, like I'm that. Oh, I'm assuming they're available um, for sale. Right? Again, that's one of those commodities oh, that will be coming over from you're Norway. absolutely right. I didn't think about that. I was like, why Why are rafters there? But they, trees right. from foreign lands being brought to Iceland. Yeah, good good call. Yeah, anyway, he he mounts this pile of rafters, um, and he puts on a courageous defense against these attackers. And then other men at the market join the fight against Thorth, assuming that he murdered Jon and Aldolf in the booth with no cause. So right. there's this whole crowd just attacking him. Yeah, now, now he, realizing that Thor's luck is about to run out, Aeth uh, hurries back to their booth and finds his father. He quickly explains that these two men tried to rob Thor of the cloak he'd bought, and that he killed them defending himself. He asks Skeggy to put aside their petty differences and help his foster father. Now, this might be just what these two need to heal the rift between them. This is ah, a, could be a right. lucky it could thing. be. Now, for now, Skeggy remains silent. And Aeth doesn't have the time to wait for a response. He leaves the booth and runs back to support Thor in the fight. Thor spots his foster son rushing back with Gamla's gift in his hand. And he shouts out, don't get yourself into trouble on my account, Aeth. His voice is dropping. His voice is dropping. Well, I'm he's so dropping because he's learning that. the ways of Iceland. He's learning to become a man. <laughs> I see that. Uh, meanwhile, back at the booth, Skeggy stands up and says, The boar will squeal if the piglet is slaughtered. It's a nice turn of that phrase that's famous from Ragnar's saga, isn't it? It is, yeah. And then he draws the sword Skofnung and he rushes out to join the fight. Okay. Great stuff. Uh, and Skeggy, when he arrives, fights bravely on Thor's behalf, or at least on Aeth's behalf. Mm-hmm. And despite his age, he handles himself so well that Thor's attackers are soon forced to retreat. As soon as the fighting stops, Skeggy announces that he himself will arbitrate the case right then and there. Which is a bold but smart move. Yeah, but he's still got Skulfning in his hand, so nobody's going to argue with him. Right. Uh, he- well, and he's a man of consequence. Everybody Absolutely. knows who he is. Yeah. Uh, now, he commands Thorth to pay two hundreds of silver for the slaying of Jon. But he decides that Althulf was killed with just cause because he was plotting to kill Thorth. Meanwhile, all the men who attacked Thorth while he was standing up on top of the rafters, uh, all the injuries they suffered go without compensation because they also mm-hmm. attacked Thorth without cause. This is good. Good for Skeggy. I like it. Uh Although I do question the decision to offer compensation for Yon at all. Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, that's uh, legitimate. But on the one hand, he, he, you know, he has to show himself to be impartial here. Uh, and so true. he needs to make yeah. sure. Remember, he's got a large crowd of angry people <laughs> that's here. Right. He has to give them something. And then also, there's the order of events to consider. Right. So Alvov drew his weapon and struck at Thor first. 
Jon also drew his weapon, but he delayed long enough that he allowed Thorth to cut off Aldo's head. So, I guess the argument could be made that Jon's attack was a response to what happened to Aldolf. I think that's a flimsy defense. Oh, I agree. But it does allow for some sense of closure, as you kind of suggested. But either way, I'm glad to see Thor and Skeggy finally working together. Yeah. That bodes well for the rest of the saga. Well, at least for now. Uh, once the compensation is paid, Thor and Skeggy ride home together, although they, they don't speak to each other the entire time. Even after all that? Yeah. Uh, now, when, Come on. when they arrive at the Midfjord of the River, they pause before going their separate ways. Skeggy mm. asks Thor to dismount so they can discuss an important matter. They're finally going to hug and make up. Right. They're going to chest bump. They're going to they're going to yeah. bro it out. Uh, no, not exactly. Listen, man, I'm sorry I didn't come uh, see you when you arrived here. Yeah, I'm so sorry. No, nothing like that. Uh, Skeggy has just saved Thor's tail right, and let him get off relatively easily for having mm-hmm. murdered two men at a at a public event. It's a good time to ask for a favor. And he's got that difficult promise that he made to his nephew, Asbjorn, about arranging a marriage with Thor's sister, Sigrid. Perfect timing, Skeggy. He, he's a smart cookie. I hey, like it. I mean, he's a chieftain for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, while there's a little back and forth about how the marriage might work and whether or not Sigrid will agree, they ultimately conclude that it's a good match. Uh, Thor yeah. offers the following terms, that Sigrid will wait for Asbjorn for three years. If he doesn't come back in that time, and this is, you know, a pretty standard agreement, right? If he, he's got three years to return, if he, if he doesn't, she'll be free from any obligation to him. But if he does come back in that time, then she'll marry him. Now, Skeggy is pleased by this, and the betrothal is confirmed in front of witnesses there. And things seem to be warming up between the two, mm-hmm. prompting Skeggy to offer a rare compliment to his rival. He says, You've behaved very well, Thord. And it was fair enough that your sister should get the cloak rather than Jon's wife. I think the men of Borgafjord will remember how your meeting with them went, too. I'm going to give you a nickname now. I'm going to call you Thord Menace. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Thor is just flat out chuffed by this nickname. Like, he's really he pleased it's a good being nickname. called Thord, Thord Menace. Uh, yeah. And he thanks Skeggy for it. Uh, before he departs for home, though, he turns back to Skeggy and says... Something tells me that this district will rarely be free from menace. Hmm. That's a good one, Thord. Might not bode well for the future, but it's a good line. It's a good line to walk out on. Mm Mm-hmm. Part 8. A Serpent in the Spring. Now, later that summer, a ship comes to shore nearby in Londodal. On board is a man called Orm. The brother of Asbjorn. Hmm. Uh, so another nephew of Skeggy's. Right. Skeggy rides out to the ship and invites his nephew to come stay with him, just as he did for Asbjorn. Now, and just like his brother, Orm is a tall and powerfully built man. Uh, the only difference is that Orm is a bit more arrogant and brash mm-hmm. than his brother. Oh, and he uh, he also loves to hang out in the hot springs. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting sort of uh, family trait, isn't it? They, they, yeah. they love a good soak. Yes, they do. Uh, so one day, Orm is soaking in the hot spring when he spots Sigrid and another woman. Apparently, Sigrid makes a practice of kind of wandering by the hot springs uh, when, when the men are bathing. Uh, he asks who this woman is, and he learns that she's the sister of Thor the Menace. And he's not impressed by that particularly. He, he then approaches his uncle Skeggy, and he asks 
if he will arrange a marriage for him with Sigrid. So that's an awkward situation. Skeggy says that he won't do any such thing, though he would happily arrange a marriage with any other woman that Orm likes. Orm isn't having this. It's Sigrid or no one, he says. Why should I go asking for your brother Asbjorn's intended? I don't care if she is betrothed to him. There'll be trouble here if you don't go and ask for her on my behalf. If you don't, I'm just going to seduce her. Her brothers might try to get involved, but it won't matter. You'll have to get involved at that point. What a bastard. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, he's terrible. Just when things were finally settling down in Midfjord, it's going to get messy. Despite Orm's bold boast, Skeggy is unconvinced that Sigurd would be foolish enough to fall for Orm's tricks. Uh-huh. And this will ultimately end in your disgrace, Orm, he says, because Thor tipped over a much heavier cartload than this when he and his brothers dealt with King Sigurd Sleva, Gunnild's son. So I like that turn of phrase, I like the expression. Tipped it's over good a one, heavier yeah. cartload, yeah. It's a useful reminder for Orm, but he doesn't care. Um, no. Siggy's frustrated by this whole affair and agrees to handle it himself to avoid trouble. But obviously he knows that none of the Thorthesons or Sigrith will appreciate Orm's proposal. And he's absolutely right. Thorth is perplexed by Skeggy's report, although I think it's really nice that Skeggy's able to just go and talk to him. Right. I mean, things have warmed up considerably. Uh, Thorth initially refuses, but eventually agrees only after Aeth and Skeggy both kind of combine forces and push for the issue to be resolved somehow. Right. Uh, now, remember that this is a bit awkward because uh, Thor has already had to go to his sister once and say that he's right. made an arrangement for her to get married without her permission. She's not best pleased by that, although she eventually does say, all right, I'm willing to consider it since you made the arrangement. Uh, but now he's being asked to arrange a second marriage for her with the brother of the last guy. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so Thor is not going to go back on his word to Osbjorn and Sigrith, right? Uh, that it's He's already made an arrangement here. So he yeah. agrees to consider Orm's offer, but only if Orth promises to leave the country for two years. This gives Osbjorn time to come back and claim Sigrith, right? He's got this three-year arrangement. Um but if Osborne does not return in two more years, then maybe Sigrith will marry Orm. Uh, and that's the best he's going to get. That's the best agreement he's going to yeah. get. Um, Skeggy agrees to this and rides home to Rekir. Right. And it's a fair solution to all parties, given the situation, I guess. Um, now, you might be wondering how Sigrith feels about all of this. Mm-hmm. My guess is she might not be happy about it. But the saga only says Sigrid did not take much notice of this. Yeah, I think we can assume that's uh, that's code for disapproval. I guess, I guess so. Who would know? Mm-hmm. So, um, but how is uh, how is Orm feeling about this arrangement once it's reported to him? Yeah, that's not great. Um, he decides that Skeggy didn't press the issue hard enough, and now he's put out. Well, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, it is. Uh, and since Skeggy failed to get him what he wanted, Orm decides to try to take it for himself. So a few days later, he rides over to Aus and approaches Sigrid, trying to chat her up. Sigrid, ever the dutiful sister. I thought she was proud and showy. Oh, oh, she is. She she is. Uh, that doesn't mean she disrespects her brothers or goes against their wishes, though. She's still a woman of a certain time and place, and that's important. And I think the saga's disinterest in women's feelings and activities uh, also uh, is an indicator there. 
Um, she makes sure that Orm understands that, telling him he needs to stop speaking with her immediately, or he'll soon learn the error of his ways if he doesn't. And she also tells Orm that she's going to continue to ignore him until her obligation to Aspiorn changes. Right, which is at least two years away, and Orm isn't a patient man. No, two years is a long time. He's not. You have to wonder what would happen if Aspiron did return and learn that Orm is sitting around waiting and demanding that Aspiron's betrothed marry him instead. Well, we have seen the uh, the warrior poets uh, run into situations, uh-huh. but not with their not brothers. Not with their brothers is the thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Sigrith has made it very clear she's not interested. Uh, but Orm keeps showing up day after day to talk to her and try to change her mind. Thorth spots this from where he's working on that ferry down by the shore. He's still working on that ferry. Yeah. Now, on the day of Orm's third visit, Thorth intercepts him and warns him that there will be a problem if he comes back a fourth time. And surprisingly, this actually works, at least for a bit. Orm doesn't return the next day or the next. Right. Although he does sort of mumble something about, you know, believing that he was allowed to be independent in Iceland and make his own decisions. Right. Uh, but uh, eventually, there's a morning when the weather is particularly good, and Thorth makes plans to sail his ferry downriver to the fjord. At the same time, one of the uh, maidservants at Os approaches Sigrith to say that it's a beautiful day for washing. Uh, so much washing. There's a lot of washing. Uh, the two of them head down to the brook that flows near the farmhouse at Os and begins their washing. Now, over at Skeggy's farm... Orm has been keeping track of everyone's movements, and he knows that Thor is planning to set sail on this day and go into the fjord. Orm's a weird combination of completely reckless and carefully planning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, he knows who Thor Mm -hmm. is, and he he knows it's a bit more than he can handle. Uh, But now now that he knows Thor might be out of the picture, he has someone take a horse uh, without Skeggy's knowledge, of course, and he rides that horse all the way over to Os. And down to the slope where Sigrid's washing clothes with this other lady. Yeah, Orm is a bold man. Uh, say he nothing is. else for him, but he is bold. He puts his weapons mm-hmm. down and approaches Sigrid. Uh, he asks her to sit down. And then he puts his head in her lap and begins talking to her about their future together. Yeah, see, again, I have to wonder how Sigrid feels about all of this. Because here she is now. Um, she's sitting on the ground. She has his head in her lap, but... I, the, the more I think about it, the, the less I'm sure she has any real choice in the matter. He says, sit down, and then he lays himself with his head in her lap. Yeah. I get the sense that she recognizes how dangerous Orm can be, but yeah. I'm just reading no, into I that. No, I don't There's think you have to read saga. very far into that. It's it's very clear that he stages this. Right, This is not done with her interest or consent at all. He sits her down and then puts his head in her lap, and she asks why he's doing that. Right. Um, right. But she may not uh, have any interest in him whatsoever. But as you say, he's, you know, a large and strong man who is carrying weapons. Uh, yeah. But he he sits her down. He lays his head in her lap. Uh, that's it. She's got to mm-hmm. sort of stand there and hope that somebody arrives before this proceeds any further. Yeah. And then he puts her hands on his head, which is is such a creepy move. He's the worst. He really is. He's terrible. And uh, that's when Sigrid makes it clear that she's uncomfortable. Um, Finally, we get to hear the woman speak. Yeah. And she asks him why he's doing all of this. And she says, I don't want you to. Very clearly. Right. And then she reminds him. Earlier you were saying that you were inferring that she was unhappy. (laughs) 
I don't think well, you have to at infer that, <laughs> at this point. Right. But at at that moment, right, it, it's right. not clear yeah. until she yeah. she makes mm-hmm. it clear, right? And I, I love that the author finally, she's been silent the yeah. whole saga. And finally, she's put in this compromising position. And we already know from the story of Olaf the kinds of things that can happen right. when men are playing power games with each other. Right. Um, and now she speaks. It's great. Um, she also reminds him of what's going to happen if her brother happens to walk by and see them. Right, speaking of her brother, the maidservant who was with Sigrith now runs off. Uh, and so she manages to reach Thor before he sets sail. And she tells him that Orm is over on the slope with Sigrith. Mm-hmm. Thor leaps to his feet and grabs his sword and shield. And then he runs up the slope and he sees Orm lying there with his head in Sigrith's lap. Which is a compromising position for both of them. Right. Although I think it's it's very clear from context that this is Orm's doing. Uh, Thorth runs down the slope shouting at Orm to get up and defend himself. And then just as Orm reaches for his sword, Thorth la- lashes out and he cuts off his right arm. Mm-hmm. Orm now tries to stand up and draw his sword with his other arm, but his leg turns awkwardly and snaps under his weight. I mean, uh, I got to give it to Orm having his arm cut off and then still reaching for the sword, trying to get it. I mean, yeah, it's that's got to be an awkward way to reach for your sword, but at least he tries. Uh, but yeah. then as his leg collapses under him, Thor uh, cuts Orm's head off and then rides home to Aus and announces the killing according to the law. Yeah, he. I do have a little bit of a problem with this because he never gave Orm a chance to even get the sword. I mean, I understand the whole thing. Uh, he told Orm what would happen if he came back, but at least let Orm stand up and pick up the weapon. I think there's something, at least in the culture that we've seen, that suggests that there's a little bit something dishonorable in his handling of the situation. But uh, what do you what do you think? No, I, I can't agree with that. Uh, there's a there's Seriously? a fairly no there's a fairly clear line here between fair play and folly. He does shout a warning to him to get up and defend himself. Orm was warned against this attack on a previous date, and he's still trying to rise and fight. It's not yeah, as if we're but told you still that still got to let him stand up. No, no, but it's not as if we're told that Thor stands back and watches Orm struggle to stand for several minutes and then slaughters him. Right? He cuts off the man's arm, and then Orm is still trying to fight him. It's all happening very quickly, and Orm doesn't appear to have accepted that he's lost the fight. I'm like he's black knighting it. It is but a scratch. Essentially, yes. Just- just let me get my sword. And I remind you that according to the venerable text of Monty Python and the quest for the Holy Grail, no less a figure than King Arthur was forced to behead his enemy when he refused to submit. So, precedent. QED. Uh, no, I, I, I don't like your reading of it <laughs> at all. No. Uh, he he killed a man who didn't have a sword in his hand. Mm. He, That's he a problem. He called for that man to defend himself. And that man, I remind you, is in the middle of uh, intimidating and possibly molesting Thor's sister. I, I don't disagree for, with you no, This on calls that. for a wider interpretation of honorable killing. Uh, this is a man who has, for uh, I, I would say, has has foregone his, his claim to honor. I mean, you know, there, there's something to what you've said, but there, there's definitely yes, there's a problem. Yes, there's right to what I've said. There's definitely a problem <laughs> with killing a man as he's reaching for his sword. I don't agree. Um, that's a, a coward's move. No, no. Not under these circumstances. Mm. Uh, no, well, this, no matter how you look at it. This is a man who has it, given up his right to be treated honorably. Well, no matter how you look at it, Thor is in trouble now. 
Sigrid tells him to run away and save himself, knowing that Skeggy will be on the warpath. But Thor says he wouldn't know where to go. It's an odd response, Which really. isn't... Yeah, it's very odd. Yeah. Uh, instead of running, he sends someone over to Skeggy's farm, and he announces the killing of Orm that way. Yeah, Sigrid thinks this is a foolish but remarkable thing to do. She says, mm-hmm. Skeggy will come straight here with a lot of men to avenge his nephew, Thor. You don't have the force to withstand him in a fight, even though you are a great hero. Right. But Thor insists on staying. Mm-hmm. He tells one of the shepherds to run over to Rekir and tell Skeggy to come and collect his fool. Oh, which is so harsh. And I would why, call it accurate. Why do you want to poke Skeggy? <laughs> Why, why are you going to poke him like that when you've just mm-hmm. killed his nephew, no matter how justified you might feel about this deed? I mean, and, you know, we've got a shepherd here who's really afraid to deliver the message, but he does run over to Skeggy's farm, and he reports the killing. And then, just as Thor told him to do, he says, uh, Thor, Thor, Thor says you should have your fool taken away. And it flinches. And as predicted, Skeggy is extremely angry. Any Mm -hmm. good feeling that might have grown between Thor and Skeggy, however small, is now gone. And Skeggy gathers a large force and rides over to Ols. Mm -hmm. Now, Thor waits for Skeggy in the farmhouse with nine other men, including his brothers. And he says he will never give way to Skeggy. And that they should all prepare to test their mettle there and then. See, I'm starting to, uh, I'm starting to wonder about Thor, John. But I'm gonna, I'll reserve my opinion just a little bit longer. I... If you're going to start criticizing saga heroes who stand against uh, odds that are against them, I think we have we have a few people we can go back and criticize in previous sagas. Mm. Uh, mm. But well, let's, let's turn uh, yeah. to Ave now. Uh, he was on his way to see some stud horses, which is a sort of side plot that we're not going to worry about. Uh, and he hears about the killing of Orm. Expecting the worst, he rushes back to us, arriving just before Skeggy. Uh, when Thor sees him, he tells him to leave. He says, because I will no more spare your father if he attacks me than I would any other man. Now, Aeth doesn't care. He says, I'm going to stand by your side, Thor, no matter what. I mm. thought when you saved my life that I would risk my life with yours. Well, then you must do your best for me when I need it most. Well, he's really, Thor's really evolved across this episode. Well, he's, now, he's you know, he's learned, he's grown up a lot. I hear you. Now, at that moment, Skeggy arrives with a large band of men that he's gathered, and he is in a rage and ready to start the battle. But then he sees his son lined up with Thor, and the fight just leaves him. Mm-hmm. Thor is eager to finally settle things with Skeggy, though, so he's not willing to let it go. He shouts out an insult. I- I'm quite prepared to slaughter the ox now. It looks quite fat and already quite old. Man, this is just the first episode, John. We've already got <laughs> great best bloodshed candidates. We've got good nicknames. Oh, yeah. We've got yep. we've got uh, notable witticisms. Yep. I mean, we finally got one. That's yep. it's this no, is a fat I know, saga. I know. Of all the sagas to to hit all the buttons, to hit all the categories. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's great. It's great. It's been it's been a while because we we you know we've had a couple where we're like I don't know. There's <laughs> I, don't, I I I'm sorry, <laughs> but not this time. Now, Skeggy doesn't take the bait. He just says, I won't attack you because I don't want to fight against Aeth. But I know that you will often continue your crimes. Now, Thor thinks that Skeggy must be afraid to fight, or at least he he claims 
that Skiggy is afraid to fight. He accuses him of using Aeth to disguise his fear of battle. But Skeggy doesn't answer. He doesn't rise to that bait. He he gets back on his horse and he leads his men back home to Rakir. Yep. And John, I think, you know, having been talking for a long time now, that's that's <laughs> where we should probably leave things right there. Yeah, it's a it's a good start to the saga. Honestly, it's a great start. Uh, I know this has been a long episode, but we've only covered the first five chapters and just look at all that's five happened. Chapters. We had a great Norwegian prelude where the Thorlusons managed to kill one of the sons of Eric Bloodaxe and Gunnhild. Right. And Fantastic. we didn't say that at the time, but that's an event that is supported across multiple sources from medieval Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Which makes it even more interesting. Mm-hmm. And then we had the slowly increasing tension between Thord and Skeggy of Midfjord. Right. And just the fact that Skeggy of Midfjord shows up in this saga and plays a major role is cool. Yeah. Uh, and to top it off, we're even getting to see him use Skofnung in battle to save his rival, by the way. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. And if that wasn't enough, we've got the near drowning of Aeth, the Borgafjord cloak battle, and then the brothers Asbjorn and Orm competing for Sigrid. Man. It's a lot packed into five chapters. Uh, it is, and that's why this is a long episode. <laughs> to be honest, sometimes we have to flesh things out a bit when we're working with these sagas. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah. The, the narrative style of some sagas can be a little bare bones sometimes, and we just... But not this time. Uh, We didn't really need to embellish anything. Everything we said here is pretty much there on the page. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some minor, minor flourishes in the dialogue. But yes. Yeah. No, this one works really well. Uh, But here's the question, John. Will it hold up across a whole saga? Mm -hmm. Does it maintain this kind of pace and quality? Or will it slip into repetition and Dullsville? Dullsville? Dullsville. Uh, I mean, I, I guess we'll find out next time. Uh, now, I know we've been going on for a while. We should probably wrap this up. I couldn't agree more. Let's just close the shop. I- wait, 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 wait. Uh, okay. There's a rune sack question we've been holding on to that uh, we wanted to address. Oh, is there now? Okay. Well, we can't ignore the rune sack. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so this one is from Rutger. Rutger? Yes. Wait, Rutger Hauer listens to Saga uh, Thing? Really? No, this is a different Rutger. So Rutger Howard doesn't listen to Saga Thing. <laughs> I can, is that what you're telling me? I can me? promise you with some confidence that he doesn't. How, but how do you know for sure? Maybe he does. Uh, I'm not going to break this to you, Andy. But <laughs> no, don't tell me. Come on uh, now. Yeah, he's not with us anymore. Uh, Rutger Howard passed away a year or two ago. Well, the, but okay. But he may have listened. We've been at this for a long time, John. Maybe. I Sure. He may have listened. Uh I, maybe that's finally what knocked him out. Uh, or <laughs> okay. uh, maybe he was busy uh, watching uh, starships burn off the off the Andromeda or something. And all those moments washed away like tears in the rain. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that was a bit – that's a bit more than I was hoping for there, John. Um, but uh, another Rutger has a question. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I actually – I pulled it up while we were messing around there. So I'm, I'm ready. Oh, you clever dog. Yeah. Well, I remembered this was this one was in your wheelhouse, and mm-hmm. Rutger contacted us via email from the Netherlands a while ago. Great. Oh, well, so that, is, that explains the name. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's apparently a, a good name in, in the mm-hmm. Netherlands. Uh, but anyway, he... Uh, it's a good Rutger, name no matter where you are. I mean, it's, it, Rutger Power is a great man's name. man, Andy. Yeah. I should have named my son Rutger. What was I thinking? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Rutger starts with a compliment. Ooh, compliments are always nice. They sure are. So Rutger writes... 
Thank you for your podcast. Uh, it it's always helps to liven up the bike ride to work. And in the process, I get to do a bit of clandestine course preparation as well. I'm an assistant oh. professor of medieval history, meaning that everyone assumes I know all the sagas. But if I learned anything from you guys, it's that nobody really knows anything about the sagas. That's very kind of you, Rutger. Uh, although it yeah. does kind of suggest that you're saying that we're included on that list. <laughs> oh, we're definitely uh, no, we're, we're, included on the list. Yeah, well, we absolutely are. Uh, no, we're glad that you've chosen to take us with you on those bike rides. Yes, yes. Uh, now for the question. Uh, are you ready? I assume you are. Yeah. I I, I guess. I, I'm the one who said we should do this question. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Here it is. Uh, but before I read this, I need your opinion real quick. On uh, what? Uh, do you say hagiography or hagiography? <laughs> okay. Uh, either one's correct. Um, they're actually both listed as uh, pronunciations. Okay. Uh, I generally go with the Africate soft G version, hey geography, but either one is acceptable. How open-minded of you. Okay. Uh, sorry. Uh, so here's the question. Rutger, Rutger says, during your analysis of Barth's saga, you kept making the comparison between some of the stories, anecdotes, chapters uh, that are told there and the broader genre of hey geography. That piqued my interest as I'm super interested in hagiographic narratives and the way that they reflect the interaction between intended audience and the presumed author. And when dealing with classic, early, and high medieval hagiography, that link between author, text, and audience is usually forged by referring to or even adapting the miracle stories in the Gospels. You can tell he's a professor, right? Just mm-hmm. from the, the whole setup here. It's, it's brilliant. It's a very well-constructed lead-up to a question. It is, uh, yeah. Um, hagiographies are so rooted in biblical discourse that saints are cast as glorified Christ reenactors, so to say. So I was wondering, is Barth, or indeed Guest, also a Christ-like figure here? Do his miracles have biblical, or for that matter, patristic parallels? And if so, or if not, he's such a professor. What does this tell <laughs> us about the way that the author of Bard Saga or authors of Bard Saga set up their protagonists as benevolent deities in a way that the audience would understand? What do you think, John? Well, first of all, hi, Rutger. Thanks for this. Uh, I'm glad we got this question, although it does feel like that moment in a uh, in a panel when somebody stands up and says, this is really more of a comment than a question. Yes, uh, <laughs> oh, the question, the question at the end is an excellent one. Um, yeah. I'm glad when we get any question, but I'm, I'm especially happy when I get a chance to talk about hey geography. Yeah. So for anyone who missed the episodes where we talked about it, uh, what Rutgers talking about here is our discussion of the ways that the stories of Barth, Snafflesass seem to draw inspiration from the tradition of stories uh, that are known as saints' lives, very right. popular in the Middle Ages. Yeah. So I think the question is whether we can think of Barth or Guest as a Christ-like figure. And I'm going to say the answer is probably with reservations. Hmm. Do you want to cap it at there, or do you want to expand on that a little? I'm going to I'm going to expand that just a little bit. I uh, thought that you was might just want the to. overture. We didn't really go fully into <laughs> the, uh, this in the episodes on Barth, uh, probably because we were trying to come up with new ways to talk about trolls. So many trolls. And so it was many trolls. Uh, but we did establish that Barth's story is deeply indebted to saints' lives, or at least parallels them in ways that suggest influence, if nothing else, from hagiographic traditions. And we can say broadly that the saints are, in almost any tradition, meant as imitative Christ figures, right? Mm-hmm. So, transitive reasoning, right? Barth's story is at least potentially a Christ analog. 
the question, and I think this is implicit in Rutger's question, is whether the imitation of hagiography is a deliberate act by the storyteller. See, that's where this gets a little hairy. Because mm-hmm. we can usually build up a fairly confident study of what traditions a given text participates in. but Right. Although I would say scholars are sometimes guilty of a little overconfidence there. Well, yes. That's yeah, one of the things they do. But there's still some quantitative work that we can do here. Uh, but trying to work out why the author incorporates those traditions? Well, we're trying to read the mind of someone who lived a long time ago. And that's... Yeah, in a, in a galaxy far, far away. Yes. Uh, yes. yes. Uh, see, we can establish pretty well that the traditions of hagiography are influencing composers and writers in Iceland more or less from the jump. Right? Even the earliest accounts of the conversion of Iceland draw on the miracle stories of continental European saints. Mm-hmm. And by the early 13th century, writing is clearly indebted to a hagiographic trope, right? Uh, A set of tropes uh, that exist on the continent. Icelandic writers are participants in a larger Christian literary production that span the Christian West. That's true from the beginning of the manuscript record. So now the oral tradition is a little bit harder to pin down. I acknowledge that. But at the least, we can say with confidence that it collides with those Christian traditions sometime before it reaches the stage of the written word. But if we put ourselves in the position of claiming to know an author's reasoning, claiming to know the why behind adding elements of Christian or hagiographic writing and using them to shape a narrative about a pagan context land spirit, if we claim that, then, I will honestly, if we do that, we're behaving like most readers, honestly. Including us, occasionally. Oh, including us. Yes, fair. Uh, now, the point I can say with great and completely unwarranted confidence is that the author or authors who wrote Barth's Saga had a narrative toolbox that included saints' lives uh, and therefore incorporated an element of imitatio Christi, Christ imitation, into the saga. But I'm less confident about identifying the author's reasons for doing so. I'm not even all that sure that it's a conscious choice rather than just part of the mental furniture of a late medieval Christian writer. Using a folk literary tradition like Saints' Lives to add flavor to this extremely folkloric story, it might just be an automatic act. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. And uh, what about uh, the the last part of Rutger's question? The last part? Oh, the last part. Well, about that, I'd have to say, what was the last part again? <laughs> it's a while ago. Yeah, he, he asks what the use of Christ-like saint stories might tell us about the way that the author or authors of Barth's Saga set their protagonist up as a benevolent deity in a way that the audience would understand. Is he, is he in other words, is he kind of uh, bridging that gap between the pagan and Christian for any lingering right. pagans out there? And Yeah. Right. I think I'd want to start that by investigating the idea that Barth is set up as a benevolent deity. He's a helpful patron, I mean, almost like an idealized Gothi. But, yeah, a chieftain uh, who's always there to help when you call on him. That's, exactly, yeah. yes. But but he's also somewhat mercurial, and he's got elements of the trickster gods. Uh, remember that he lies his way into Skeggy of Midfjord's house and seduces the innocent Thor to Skegge daughter as a cruel act of revenge. And if we are uh, piling up his less than wonderful qualities, we can also add the gouging out of his own son's eyes, or yeah, and the throwing of children off of mountains. Right, and that gouging out of his son's eyes is his final miraculous act, if we, if we want to use the language of miracles. Yeah, it's at least complicated to try to frame Barth as a benevolent god in any Christian sense of the concept. He's more of a contrast, I think. Right, but I don't think we need to find benevolence to understand the text's use of hagiographic motifs. 
as I said, this might well be a habit of mind for a late medieval author, but whether he's benevolent or not, Barth's important feature for those who venerate him is that he's active. Prayers to Barth get answered, and usually answered to the clear benefit of the person who's called on him. That's what makes a saint's cult run. The lifeblood of a saint's cult was the belief that the saint was actively present in the world, that the, act, that the saint had a willingness to intervene on the behalf of the faithful. In that respect, Barth's an excellent imitation of a saint. Even Honestly, even the way he turns on guests at the end of the saga fits with saint stories. Saints could get quite riled up when they felt like someone on their turf wasn't showing the proper respect. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this, in England, there's a 10th century story from the cult of Cuthbert about a Dane named Onlofbald who seized some lands around one of Cuthbert's churches. Onlofbald then burst into the church in the middle of a mass and yelled, What can this dead man Cuthbert do to me? I swear by Thor and by Odin that I will be the greatest enemy to you all. <laughs> he then immediately drops it on the spot <laughs> because it's it's rarely a rewarding experience in these stories to be the enemy of a saint. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, my friends, is what you get when you ask John a question about hey geography. Ah, what can I, I'm a fool for the saints or at least the cultural movement around the saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a few excellent resources, by the way, for looking into this in more detail, if you're interested. Um, I, I've got a few things I can recommend. We'll put links up on the website. No. If anyone's planning a, a raucous few nights of reading about the northern cults of saints. Yeah, but we won't do that. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting will. idea. I've already got the Word document set to send to you. Andy. Oh, well, then maybe it, maybe it will happen. Maybe it will. <laughs> hey, John, uh, I know that we're going to wrap up here in a second, but um, I just saw a bunch of articles today about uh, people coming out of sanctuary and churches with the transition from Trump to Biden and a loosening of the uh, oh, nice. of immigration laws and things yeah, like yeah. that. Uh, people that were in hiding uh, in fear yeah. of being deported uh, mm-hmm. were seeking sanctuary. Uh, and I read an article about a guy who was in sanctuary in a church for three years. That sounds right. And that is that is one of the subjects of your dissertation, is it not? Sanctuary? Yep. Yep. Uh, and that's, I mean, three years sounds like a long time to us, but um, historically, that's that's uh, in some places and sometimes more the rule than the exception. There were people who would flee to sanctuary and then just stay there. Yeah. Um, I, uh, at one point in working on my dissertation, I read a document about all the people who were kept in a particular church in what is now kind of central London, sort of uh, near the Barbican. Um, and in that church at one point, there were uh, nearly 50 people uh, wow. claiming sanctuary. Mm. Now, it was a very large sanctuary, and so some of them were living in sort of outbuildings. Yeah. But uh, there was one fellow there uh, who had been accused of murder and had been living in sanctuary for 20 years at the time of that document's wow. writing. It's a long time. But that that sanctuary could protect you for a very long time. As long as you don't in leave. In some ways, it's, you know, it's it's like tenure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's great if you can claim it, but it's kind of a golden handcuff, right? You yeah. really can't leave once you've got it. Well, but sometimes the, uh, the institution tries to maybe trick you into leaving for just for a minute. <laughs> See what happens. Right. If you ever step outside of tenure. Yeah. We're going to kill you. Then they can, they can attack you. The yeah. deans can come for you. That's great. Anyway, it's, it's all fascinating <laughs> stuff, but all right, we've tortured our audience for far too long. Uh, let's wrap it up here. Absolutely. Uh, tell me, Andy, uh, what if our listeners say wanted to get in touch with us to ask a question like Rutger did or to tell us how much they enjoyed or hated this episode? <laughs> Would you be able to help them out with that? 
I would be able to help them out with that. Yeah. If uh, if you want to reach us, you can get in touch with us via email where we are sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you are a social media type, we are on Facebook and Instagram as sagathingpodcast. Or you can follow us on Twitter and drop us a line there where we are at sagathingpod. Right. Or I mean, you could leave a message with Skeggy of Midfield. That guy seems to get everywhere, so he'll probably be dropping by here soon. Yes, right. Looking through our looking through our stuff. Right. All right. If you uh, if you have genuinely enjoyed this episode, everyone, uh, or or like uh, if you like what we do here in general, uh, well, please write us a review and tell all your friends about us because we'd love to see our audience continue to grow. We've got a, a decent size now. Let's let's see if we can keep it going. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, word of mouth of written reviews are not only helpful, but they are our entire ad campaign. That's right. So thank you for spreading the word. Yeah. Uh, one last thing. I want to thank our buddy Brian Faust for once again jumping back into the Saga Illustration game. Uh, you can see him as uh, Scarpathan underscore illustrator on Instagram. Uh, he did two drawings for us this time, and they're both great. Uh, <laughs> we've got the killing of King Sigurd Slefa, uh, uh and the chain of killings, I guess, that goes with it. And then a really sweet one of Orm hitting on Sigurd at the hot spring. It's so sweet. Um, oh check out our show notes or visit our website to see those. Now, we've managed to collect quite a few fantastic illustrations over the years. We have. Do we, do we have anywhere on the website where people can access all of those at once? We don't. No, we don't. Oh. But uh, I well, hope that we probably something. shouldn't talk about this. I, I'm not interested in putting up your stupid links uh, to articles, but I do think oh, it'll be well. fun to put up the uh, the the list of illustrations. So <laughs> look for that on our website soon. Um, that is sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. I, I admire your commitment to the the nuts and bolts of the scholarly world that we inhabit. Yeah. Uh, we, we should really we should really get ourselves a real website instead I'd of uh, love, to piggyback onto WordPress. I'd love a real website. Uh, have you seen like uh, the Maniculum Podcast website? Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, uh, why why can't you do something like that? Why can't I do something like that? Because <laughs> we we are cheap and we went the free route on the site. And uh, I would also point out that we lack the talent to make it look nice. It's true. We are talentless. <laughs> okay. On that note, let's uh, let's say goodbye. Yeah, it's it's more than that time. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. We'll be back. This voice is awful. This guy's such a douche with this voice. Um, who, who, you or me? No, this voice that I've given him, I feel. Yes, it's terrible. It. It's the uh, worst you've ever done. Uh, I'm going to have to like age him soon. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't really grow up that much in this. Little saga. Lord Fauntleroy here. Uh, <laughs> I was. I'm. I'm sure of that. <laughs>